0: All right, and we're back with another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot at uh, George Kennan Club. That's uh, your host, Samaj McDowell. Uh, Wayne Wright is here. Brian is here. Aubrey is here. Um, we have two new guests. Um, our guests, contributors to the George Kennan uh, Club, round table, group, whatever you want to call it, um, and as per culture here at the Pivot, uh, they will introduce themselves and they will give you a little background about who they are, and from there we'll um, go right into, as they say, right into the thick of it. You know, that's that's what the, that's what the kids say nowadays. Wayne, right. what they say? That's what they say. That's what I'm told. Oh, that's what you're told. Oh, okay.
1: Probably okay. soon they'll make something else up. You know they
0: will. This damn generation. <laughs> 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 but um. Who wants to go first, Jamie or... Oh, all right, there we go. <laughs> I, want, I want
2: seniority preside. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, just a <laughs> little bit older, huh? That's all fair. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, James, Jimmy, Jim, Capella, whatever you prefer. depends on your level of cajality. Um I am a Army infantry veteran. Uh, spent a few years doing um, op- operational force uh, activities in Germany. I uh, did a lot of like counterinsurgency style training. Now I'm uh, getting my master's degree in heavy research in counterinsurgency and peacekeeping missions. Also now getting into food security. Um, I primarily focus on East Africa, but I do have a lot of background in the Sahel region and in West Africa and a tiny bit in the Middle East, but I don't think to be an expert in that area.
3: All right, hey everyone, my name is John Mueller. Uh, I attended Fordham University for undergrad, specialized in um, Middle East and North Africa international affairs. Uh, also, minored in Arabic. Um, learned a pretty good amount about Islam as well. I've read the Quran a few times. Um, I'm now pursuing a master's in statecraft and international affairs. Again, spoke you know focusing on. Uh, Middle East, North Africa, the Arab-slash-Islamic world, if you will. Uh, Predominantly specialize more so in insurgency doctrine and uh, counterinsurgency. Well, it's good to have you both. And as you you guys can probably tell, we will be focusing heavily
4: on Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa throughout this podcast. But before we even get into that topic, Aubrey has some information on Pakistan. He's been following the the country pretty closely over the past couple weeks. So, Aubrey, if you just want to give us a Wikipedia summary of what's going on, and then we can kind of go from there. Hi, Aubrey. Hi, everyone. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so, Con the Man, he's been on, uh... Oh, he's been, he's been, on, he's, been on, he's been he's been on, my, uh, my, my screen lately.
4: What's he been doing on the screen? Oh,
5: <laughs> he's been saying a lot of clown stuff. Like what? Oh, butterfly? he's been, uh accusing the U.S. uh, in a foreign conspiracy of trying to overthrow his government. And recently, in fact, just today, the Supreme Court overturned uh, the no confidence vote that happened in parliament, Pakistani parliament. And so that has finally gone through. There's nothing that he can do about it. A lot of analysts are saying that the military also doesn't support him. Uh, It's just a very interesting episode for Mr. Khan, and for a country that has seen nothing but military coups over the past 30 years to finally have some institutions with backbone and, say, buy Khan.
4: So Khan is the president of Pakistan, correct? Correct. And he has been having problems controlling the legislature, the judiciary, even the military. Um, How about the intelligence of Pakistan? Does he have any pull over them? Uh, Apparently not, because he didn't uh, appoint uh,
5: the new chief that was supposed to be it was supposed to go into ISI. And so that's partly why some of these protests occurred uh, over the past couple weeks, uh, because that ISI chief had some sort of political influence over the parliament. Uh, but yeah, that, that's just something I want to start off with. That's
4: your nice little Wikidata article there. So John, just going off what Aubrey you know, said about
3: Pakistan, what, what's your take on this, this whole instability that's going on in that country right now? Uh it's not necessarily shocking to me. Um, Pakistan has a pretty rich history in um, kind of corrupt regimes and uh, personnel within those regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even if you date back to say, uh, you know, the rise of the Taliban, the emergence of the Taliban in the early nineties in Afghanistan, uh, the entire, you know the president of pakistan at the time denied in 1995 that they were supporting the taliban yet high ranking officials within the isi that were of pashtun ethnicity were directly supporting the taliban so it's a little bit of a he said you know he said she said game over there in pakistan and then um, the isi is is pakistan's premier intelligence agency correct correct okay. yes okay so Everyone in Pakistan, uh, I'd say they all have their days. They all have their <laughs> affiliations. Um, some people feel a little stronger about their support towards groups than others. Yeah, I've heard it said that you know Pakistan
4: isn't so much as a country as like a place where everyone can hate India equally. Is, is, that, is that a good way to kind of describe Pakistan, not so much as a consolidated country, but more of kind of a
3: confederation of a bunch of different interests? Uh, you can make the argument. Um, okay. I mean, for example, Pakistan has the tribally confederated zone along Afghanistan's border, which is full of madrasas and hotbeds that just, you know, every year produce thousands of Salafi jihadists that go on to sure. create terror in Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, all the Sahel, you know, all over the world. So. You can certainly make that observation. So my my
2: question is, oh, Jimmy, do you have anything to input there? I just wanted to throw in that um, it really is a constitutional crisis mm-hmm. um, in Pakistan, which is something that needs to be observed. Uh, pulling out my history card, uh, I believe I think it was Charles the first or second of England was the first constitutional crisis in uh, normal like Republican history. Um, but it is being reviewed the action of um, Pakistan's uh, Prime Minister to dismiss uh, the legislative body and like in response to um, like the challenges to his authority and it is currently under review by the, the third equivalent of the Supreme Court whereas opposed they have 11 uh, I'm sorry we have 11 where they have, they have five um, top judges so the ball, um, Aubrey. Maybe you can comment on this. But I, I would say the ball is, is in the court of the their their version of the Supreme Court. It's just a matter of if that's going to get recognition or not, which is I think something that needs to be monitored more so than um, maybe the, the tribalistic nature of it. Okay. And I agree. With, I agree with
5: Jimmy there. I think that's a good step for, for Pakistan, especially with just how much volatility the country has. Uh, in terms of its history and all these, like I said, military cues over the past 30 years. Uh, personally, I think it's good that the military doesn't back up Khan because there would have been at least a little bloodshed, and that's just coming from uh, just hindsight from what we've seen.
4: So, yeah, just just going off of everything you guys have said, I just want to open this up to the whole table. What is the next step for Pakistan? You know, will Khan be disp- deposed? Or will he try and stay in power? And then what will be the ramifications of that? This is like an open question. Like, what do you guys think the I, next step is? What do you got back? I
1: feel like for Khan, I'm not the biggest, in fact, I'm not even a Pakistani expert at all. My only guess from the few things I know about Pakistan is it sounds like Khan is trying to hold on to power, or at least just take power for himself, because I'm pretty sure like Pakistan's had a few dictators in its past. But that's an understatement. <laughs> 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 well, that explains it. It sounds like Khan wants to hold on to power to possibly beca- become the next dictator of Pakistan. But it's, if the military doesn't, I think Khan would need the military to hold himself in power. And if the military doesn't support him, then probably they will do a coup of some kind against him if he continues his the pappy zone right now. That's my guess. What about you, Samaj? What do you think all this? Um.
0: I think when it comes to Khan's predicament um, especially with where it's going now and as Khan O'Brien which you alluded to pretty much comes down to what side the Pakistani military is going to kind of side with um, if there's one thing that we've seen um, in Pakistan's at least contemporary history is that if the Pakistani military don't like you you're, you're done. Um, and the same thing with the ISI. I mean, ISI, if I remember correctly, uh, when we were trying to assist the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union, it, Pakistan basically said, like, okay, well, we'll allow you to you know, funnel, essentially, weapons into Afghanistan, but in order for you to do that, you have to agree to allow us, the ISI, to determine who gets said weapons. And that was the Mujahideen, who's now... Tell me, <laughs> so um, understanding but even the power of the military in relation to their geopolitical rivalry with India um, their desires to kind of essentially influence Kabul so like they're not in predicament where they're sandwiched in between uh, swinging towards Indian leaning Afghanistan oh no it's Jesus Christ Afghanistan leaning India that would be weird <laughs> India leading <laughs> Afghanistan. So you're, so you're saying
4: Pakistan's whole geopolitical stance is to make sure that Afghanistan isn't too friendly to India. Yes. And so that they they have a chance well, to buy the thing
1: I want to actually mention something. Well the thing that's been around since I'll honestly say since the Soviet Afghan War is the main pol- one of the main policies for Pakistan and Afghanistan is what well, you just said to keep Afghanistan away from Indian interests. Why? Because if Afghanistan were friendly to India that basically means there's the possibility that they could have a war on two fronts the next time India mm-hmm. like Pakistan and India go to war. And that has been that has been one of the most strategic things for Pakistan since I'd like to say the nineteen eighties or early seventies like late seventies. And especially like the ISI has been very influential in trying to avoid that. In fact, I'd say they've gained so much influence since the Soviet Afghan war that they can I don't know if I should, if this is the right way to say, but in some way it could create policy, or they basically act independent from the
3: government almost.
0: In a way, um, go ahead, Jason.
3: So, to kind of all your guys' points, uh, Samaj, the agreement that you were talking about between the U.S. and uh, Pakistani ISI in particular was the CIA operation Cyclone which gave mm-hmm. the Mujahideen roughly 350 to $380 million over a 10-year period. Um, Stinger, surface-to-air, anti-air uh, you know, capabilities, weapons, even uh, MI6 and CIA agents would meet them, uh, meet Mujahideen on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and pass them intelligence as well as training manuals and things like that. Um and Brian kinda to go going to your point about what Pakistan wants with Afghanistan is strategic depth in case a conflict breaks out with India. So that they are in between literally Iraq and hard place, so that they have an ally on at least one side of their nation. And that's why you see, you know, the Pakistani ISI and military and even sometimes people in their government supporting the Taliban in the 1990s, and I would imagine even today, uh, because they know that, you know, essentially if we prop this regime up in Afghanistan, they'll be receptive, and we can have an ally on at least one side of our borders. Actually, Jack, I did want to ask you one question. This is kind of based on some stuff I
1: heard back in beginning, like the, near the end of last year, when the uh, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, there were claims that from Afghans that were able to leave the country that Pakistan
3: helped them to gain power. What do you think about that? I have no doubt about it. Um, More than likely true Uh, even when they rose to power the first time Pakistan and Saudi Arabia were known to pay off certain commanders former Mujahideen commanders that controlled certain provinces and important cities so that they would surrender so that the Taliban could just easily come in, uh, classic subversion tactics essentially. And that's why you saw the Taliban, I mean, what, it took them two weeks essentially to take the entire country. And as soon as they came back in from Pakistan to Afghanistan, you saw entire provinces and cities just lay down their weapons. They wanted no part, they had been paid off by someone, more than likely from historical knowledge, Pakistan or Saudi Arabia so. Groundwork been laid. So right, exactly. It's, it's been done before, yeah. there's no doubt it was done again.
4: I
5: was just going to add on to what John was saying, and this is coming from a book that I read called Ghost Wars by Steve Cole. It's a very good book. Very good. It's about 500 pages, as long as a Harry Potter book. Um, so, what John was saying in terms of Pakistan always wanting to keep Afghanistan stabilized because of India, obviously, and uh, what I remember coming out of that book, talking about uh, the, the covert wars that were happening in Afghanistan during the Cold War, uh, is that Pakistan was very much afraid of India turning Afghanistan into you know a puppet regime. And so they saw this as, a, as well as uh, with Iranian influence as well. Uh, they wanted to make it some sort of buffer in between uh, for both India and Iran and to keep that part off of their uh, their western flank in any sort of conflict not only with India but with Iran as well and it, it's just uh, looking at it from a bird's eye view above when uh, you see the just the strategic geography that Pakistan is in now the one more thing I'm going to say about Pakistan is this, we're starting to see, at least in terms of the Ukraine conflict, uh, a lot of autocrats around the world are, and I mean, they've, they've always done this, but they try to forge in uh, these, these conspiracies of the United States trying to overthrow uh, their their government. And I mean, this, this happened in 2014, where uh, Vladimir Putin uh, blame the U.S. for overthrowing the, the government in Kiev, and it's it's happening here in Pakistan, and it, it's just a a disturbing trend that I've seen uh, since then. And uh, I think it's a good segue to get into
4: our main topic. Well, no, I, I mean I think we yeah I think we've gone into Pakistan decently in depth here, and I guess we can go we can move six. 6,600 miles all the way to Africa, you know, They <laughs> hit the Sahel region a little bit. So, Samaj, you got anything you want to give or take? Yeah, Just about yeah it's six about six, six yeah. Think about that now. Yeah, yeah. That's a long trip. It's, yeah. a, it's a super long. trip. But we're we're taking it and we're moving into the Sahel region and hopefully yes, we are moving. The, can, can hit it off
0: to the Sahel region. Um, so, I think it's it's important that especially we talk about the Sahel region for a few reasons but uh, two of those reasons uh, is definitely climate and geography how um, the imbalances of different environmental terrains and um, just weather patterns in the Sahel are having global impacts um, especially when it comes to the production of much more violent hurricanes across the Atlantic uh, towards the United States Um, the The drying up of Lake Chad, for example, um, and how that's even contributing to the growth of not even just Islamic militancy, but also the growth of uh, militias and new warlords to occupy what's left of fertile lands, killing off farmers, um, and essentially develop this cycle of uh, violence, essentially, amongst militias amongst insurgent organizations etc um just to give people clarity uh, the sahara region is essentially if you ever look at the map of africa it's a, it's from mauritania on the coast of west africa all the way over to the red sea essentially it's sahara yeah.
4: adjacent it's to the south of the sahara desert yes directly south
0: um to put it into a much more um, closer perspective as far as distance in the United States. Think of an area from New York City to Vancouver. Um, you can fit multiple Afghanistans, multiple Iraqs, multiple Syrians, uh, etc. into this Into this, um, I'm not even going to call it a strip of land. It's basically a, a wild, wild west for, for terrorist insurgents and warlords. Um, wild,
4: for, wild west about the length of Chile. Basically, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Give it to <laughs> um, but our main topic today is definitely the Sahel, but looking at the contributions to its instability. Um, now, granted, you can go back in history um, and look at the continual presence of the French in West Africa and how they continue to exert their influences on former West African colonies. Um, but you don't even have to go back that far. Um, You can look at um, the decolonization process and how these particular African nations were formed um, and how set colonial borders disrupt traditional African tribal villages, their historical lands, etc. But then also we can fast forward to when ISIS was losing steam and where did all the insurgents and extremists go? They went to Africa. Um, there was a lot of prime opportunity a lot of the, the nations in Africa are far weaker than that of Iraq, far weaker than that of Syria um, and more importantly they're not as supported by external foreign powers as for example Syria is by Russia or Iraq is by Russia for certain, or Iraq is by Iran um, in certain certain areas. story of the Wagner group In Africa, but that's for a completely different reason, and they are purely barbaric in Africa. Um, But to start off with discussions, it's pretty much um, a round table for anybody. Um, What would you what what's the main or a main source contributor to the growth of Islamic uh, insurgencies or the growth of violence? In um, the Sahel, is it geographic based, climate change based, is it politically based, all of above, etc. Pretty much an open discussion at this point. Go ahead. Um,
2: well, I mean, it's it's all of them. Uh, I mean, from Mauritania all the way to Eritrea, um, the the Sahel is a as you alluded, Samaj, very very stupidly, it is a wild west. Um, you have a geographic region that is dry, um, that is isolated from a great deal of the political centers from the country that it geographically entails. Nigeria for example, um, most of its economic base is in the south. Nigeria is arguably the most powerful country in all of Africa and they are having a hard time controlling their own piece of the Sahel region. Mm. Mali, um, culturally significant throughout all of Africa, struggling with um, and having to bring in the French time and time again in order to to counter uh, insurgent actions in that area. All the way to Eritrea, which is my brainchild, which is the, um, involves the TPLF and the EPLF and um, East African organizations. Sudan, same thing. All ties in with um, the resources in those areas, which can be exploited by the mobility of um, Insurgent groups. Uh, now we look at you look at the political organizations there, and they are strong in their urban bases. But the further you go away from those bases, is when you start to encounter um, a lack of, of regional control. Yeah.
4: So, are you talking state governments or
2: international organizations? Like I'm talking state governments. Okay. okay. I, I'm talking state governments, um, and they have wholesale across the board, and I mean from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea, failed to really contain these matters. And now it's, is it their fault that they failed? I would argue no. Um, they, they were set up to fail by virtue of how their governments are set up. Their governments across almost the entire Sahel aren't meant to dictate African quote unquote tribal areas. And I, I believe it's become really apparent over the last 10 years, uh, particularly since the fall of ISIS in, in Syria and Iraq, that this has become the new hotbed of how to do things. And one of the major challenges of this is trying to support a national government in, say, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, Eritrea, maybe not so much Eritrea uh, due to their own government, but Sudan, and also counterbalancing that with the fact that these groups don't respect international boundaries as mm-hmm. we have to do. Every time that we engage with, whether it be the United mm-hmm. States or the UN, um, or even the African Union to a great extent, engage with one of these nat- like nations, they, uh, they might be great at counterinsurgency operations. But then, what happens when a group in Mali retreats um, into neighboring Niger or in Mauritania, mm-hmm. and the jurisdiction changes? And you know, the French have a mandate for Mali, but not for you know, not for Niger or Nigeria, and that's where I think that we're running into like some of the more major issues. Yeah, I agree. I definitely
0: agree. Um, I think, in Jack, Jack, um, then we're going deeper into like the Sahel. You know, there's the Sahel Five in particular. Um, so part of that is oof, Chad, Mali, uh, Niger,
3: Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso and
0: Mauritania. Um, there are two, in particular, um, orga- Islamic organizations, Salafi organizations that are running amok um, in the Sahel. Uh, one being Al-Qaeda. Another being Islamic State. Um, and even before we get to that, we also have to look at two particular countries um, that are continuing to experience a growth um, of Islamic Jihadism. That's in Somalia and that's in Mozambique. Um, and Mozambique's case, as uh, far I remember, is Islamic State affiliate. And they are. Re- hell is not even a good, that's not even a good descriptive word to describe what this particular organization is doing in Mozambique to the point where Rwanda is talking about sending in their military to help in the coalitional force.
1: Well, Rwanda, turn, right? Right. Already, Rwanda already sent their military. Right,
0: they've force. sent the, um, but that's just demonstrating that these particular organizations like the State and Al-Qaeda um, because of the weak political and military structures uh, within these African nations it's very, very, very difficult to address the socioeconomic economic uh, situations that give rise to these insurgents but then on top of that and then the, we can shift back to the Sahel as uh, Jimmy alluded to a lot of the insurgents are able to regroup and structure their logistics um, as, likes I like to say sustainment, yes. <laughs> um, sustainment in essentially the hinterlands of these countries, the very, very rural um, areas of um, these African nations where there's very, 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 very little central government presence, central government authority, and central government military apparatus. Um, in addition to that, the interrelations between African countries are playing a major um, contribution to that as well. Um, as Jimmy just you know alluded to earlier, if France has a security mandate with Mali and they're going after particular insurgents in Mali, but then they move to Algeria, where technically France is not, not going to roll over for Algeria, they will actually fight. But let's say they go into Burkina Faso. For, Yeah, they have an obligation because of the Sahel 5 Defense Force, but as far as actual mandates, France's priorities are gonna change. Um it's in alignment with their whatever security arrangements with Burkina Faso know Well
1: that it's funny because that actually reminds me of a story not too long ago. There was a YouTube called Live Liveth Forevermore, and he he's mostly he's not really like a his He's not really a geopolitical guy. He's actually a guy who talks about military operations, specifically special ops or just military battles in general. One of the operations he talk about was involving a hostage crisis that came out in Benin originally. Uh, two reporters got captured. French reporters got captured by a terror group. And, they were, and that terror group was trying to transport them from Benin to Burkina Faso, then to Mali. The French military did track where they were, but right as they were tracking, they noticed they took, they went camping. They stopped in Burkina Faso, Nuremberg, Mali, and they literally decide then if they, yeah, because I guess for some reason they couldn't go after, they would lose track of them if they went into Mali, so they had to attack them in Burkina Faso, which just shows, crap, I just forgot where I was going. Well, no, <laughs> no, it makes no, sense. no, it's okay. I just want to clarify
4: something. we have be using the term they a lot. Who is they? Who are the groups involved? What are, what's their composition right. what and disposition? What that's what paints. we're about to get into. Yeah, not, exactly. If, Jack, if Jack, Jack wants to hit it off, yes. I'd like to learn more.
3: So I can jump into this, Please uh, do. I suppose. So, you know, your two main groups, essentially, there's really three, but one of them's kind of less active than the other two. So you have the AQIM, which is Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Mahrib. Mm-hmm. And then you have ISWAP, which is the Islamic State in the Western African province. Your third is Boko Haram. Boko Haram has been around since 1998, yep. um, primarily in northern Nigeria, but they have expanded operations. They've been going on and off with with Nigerian security and security forces for a very long time. Um, ISWAP or the Islamic State in West African Province is essentially the umbrella organization of all of the Islamic State regimes or groups that operate within the Sahel. So that includes the uh, the ISGS. The Islamic State in the Greater Sahara is also a part of that. Um, And originally, ISWAP was an offshoot of Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe it was in 2017 that they kind of split away from the group. um, Mostly because Boko Haram was kind of too radical for them. Which is absurd. Oh, Boko Haram doesn't that mean something about Ghent? I forgot the exact. Boko Haram quite literally translates to Western education mm. is forbidden. Right. Yeah. That's what we're talking about—the Wild West in the Sahel. Like that's how wild it is. It's their their, their names literally yeah. detest the West, like mm. as is. Yeah. They're not trying to establish a Western state like mm. ISWAP or Al Qaeda. You know, there no Islamic state, no caliphate. Boko Haram is quite literally trying to rid the Sahel and all of North Africa, really, of Western education, Western colonization, anything that is Western-related, any influence, be gone. Mm-hmm. Now, now
4: I, I just want to ask a follow-up question. So how do these, these groups launch
3: attacks at their targets, and then how do they hide from people who are trying to attack them? in Sahel. Okay, so this is a little outside of my specialization. I, oh, we will get this But in terms of their actual attacks, they primarily carry out mm-hmm. that much. I can easily answer. Um, so mostly uh, AQIM, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. They carry out typical guerrilla style ambushes. They use IEDs, mortars. Mines, the likes, um, and occasional suicide bombings. And essentially, how they get their money for operations is kidnappings and extortion. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you have Boko Haram, who in the beginning started out as, you know, from 1998 until probably 2010. Started out as a guerrilla fighting force and at one point. I mean their numbers were estimated by a high-ranking defector to be up over 40,000 Roughly 10,000 fighters and then their families typically travel with them as well as the captives they take from attacks Um, And after roughly 2010 they started moving more towards suicide bombing operations because they were having issues with Nigerian security forces, as well as kind of the Sahel Five we'd already previously touched on. And so they were using the captive women and children and basically forcing them to wear suicide vests and walk into crowded markets or malls. So by 2017, they were really desperate and they were resorting to- That's another statement. It was like (laughs) incredibly, so they were so desperate that the Islamic State and AQIM both said you are too (laughs) radical for us. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Al-Qaeda, the same Al-Qaeda you saw in Iraq. We're talking about ISIS that you see in Syria, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, groups like the Taliban, like strict Sharia law people. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not, you know, we're not putting bombs on people we just captured and making them do this. Right right i was gonna say was this after um chad cameron i think niger sent in military forces to go after boko haram yes because they their numbers depleted the window vastly they were down to i think less than a thousand at one point yeah because if i
1: remember i don't remember the exact year, but if i remember the scenario basically boko haram gained an area the size of czech of czech republic and then they thought hey we can, if we're so powerful, we can go into arguments, we can try to go into Chad. That didn't go so well, and then Chad was like, "All right, you came into us, so we're gonna take care of you." <laughs>
4: yeah. So Aubrey, just before we transition to would you raising your hand, you had something. Yeah, I was
5: gonna add, John. So uh, on top of like any type of Western symbols that they target, uh, or any type of symbol of colonialism that they target, is there uh, are there any connections to uh, religious minorities
3: that they also target? I don't know a lot about that, but specifically in the Sahel region. But just going off of um, you know ISIS operations in the likes of Syria or Iraq or elsewhere, I would imagine. Um, so I mean, in Syria, you had Alawite uh, Muslims targeted. Um, you know, th- basically your, your minority Islamic groups were targeted, and. I mean, essentially almost made extinct within Syria. Um, you saw the same thing in Iraq in the early 2000s. So I, I don't know for sure. I can't say for certain, but I would imagine that that is probably happening.
5: Going back to what Samaj said about Mozambique uh, and the insurgency there, there there is probably a high high likelihood that, that is that it that is occurring because I remember, uh, looking into the uh, the situation in Mozambique at one point for a special project I was doing, and there were just reports coming out of these these different villages, and God bless the Mozambicans, they still have news coming out uh, daily about all this stuff. But uh, of these insurgents going and into specifically Christian Catholic mi- uh, minority towns and destroying or defacing, uh, a lot of the Catholic symbols that they had, uh, placed up all around that town by missionaries, uh, as well as converts. And so, uh, I guess they, they take that as just another symbol of, of just Western imperialism, uh, I, I, I based on well, what I'm hearing from John,
4: what was even crazier though, you mentioned you said that the Christians in Mozambique I think were minorities. Like they're not; they're like sixty-five percent of the yeah, population or more. So that just shows you how vicious and violent these these terrorist organizations are in Mozambique.
0: But even if you look at the case point with Nigeria, it's the reason why Boko Haram does not go south, mm-hmm. um, and simply because southern Nigeria um, is incre, it's dominated. By Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, okay. and yeah, um, and that's where a lot of the energy resources are, and even in those areas of the of the natural gas and the oil, you still have warlords, you still have militias, still in Biafra, um, and Boko Haram. They're as barbaric as they are. They're not stupid. Um, now, granted, the area, you know, history is my thing, Wayne like, right? Um, the area that Boko Haram is in, historically speaking, do you know where the second largest concentration of slaves were
2: behind the United States? You're about to tell us. I am, but I want you to guess. <laughs> I mean, like, the biggest slave market ever was the Ottoman Empire. As far as the <clears> actual <throat> usage of a slave Oh, place, okay,
0: please. It was the Sokoto Caliphate in northern Nigeria where Boko Haram is. Um the Sokoto Caliphate owned well yeah, owned um uh, anywhere between one to two point five million slaves, um, primarily from conquest. Um uh, they literally established um I'm gonna call it a yeah, you know, I guess a caliphate, but they had a very bureaucratic structure with emirs and Um, A slave class, um, so on and so forth. Um, Sokoto Caliphate. If you look at the areas of its geography, what they possessed, it's literally the areas of the Sahel that we see a lot of this insurgencies occurring um, across Nigeria into, for example, in the direction of Burkina Faso, up into that area. Um, But. Nonetheless, when we're talking about um, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, I um, know Jimmy, you had something that you wanted to say, or you want me to go? No, I mean, no, you can go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: I, I had a quick, I had a quicker point. yeah, right, um, go ahead. Just the, sort of the military layout of the area, mm-hmm. and I believe the, word sustainment was brought out, which brings me tremors back from my military career, <laughs> as short as it was. Um, the, the Lake Chad Basin is really the strategically geographic center of Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. Um, it encompasses Niger Chad, Cameroon, Northeast Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And there are several, as we would refer to, like national or state parks designated mm-hmm. um, um, areas in the region that are. Wild. There is, they're still wild. They're, these are not developed regions by Western standards or even by African standards. Mm-hmm. And this gives Boko Haram and has given Boko Haram quite a bit of um, quite a bit of leeway in how they approach obtaining like logistical support or mm-hmm. access to the, to the black market um, for weapons. Uh, because they, like Chad, again, is such a desolate region, not necessarily in population mm-hmm. density, which it also is, but in the in the sense that they're able to hop around the border to several different countries relatively unopposed with a simple bribe or mm-hmm. sneaking past at night, night operations and logistics are... Are huge if you can pull them off, and they're they're able to resupply and more importantly relocate when they become suspicious. Mm-hmm.
4: I got I got a question here. How roughly how many fighters are in each of these these groups? Boko Haram, Al Qaeda. You know how, how many? What's their and then what are they using to fight? I mean, right. Jack Jack is talking about you know mines, suicide like right. this. Right.
0: So they're from what I've seen, their numbers window and they're only based off of estimates and the reason why they're only really based off of estimates is because a lot of these groups, they'll merge one day, they break apart the next day um, they'll do peace treaties but then they'll go to war with each other um, there was one point in time where um, there was Islamic State in West Sahara, they had anywhere between 15 to 20,000 um, you had the Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda um, their affiliates had anywhere up to 20,000 But then, as Jack brought up, Boko Haram had anywhere up to 40,000. But then come 2017, they had less than 1,000.
4: So the weekend warriors there. Right. But there's a
0: reason. And this is where my part comes into play. Um, So now we're going to talk a little bit about the operations, how both al-Qaeda operates and how the Islamic State operates. um, But also some statistical facts that need to be known about Africa looking forward and where a lot of these jihadis come from. Because bulk of them, one, they don't truly believe in the Islamic jihadist ideology. Um, and I'll explain that later. Um, so the Islamic State, they heavily depend on the usage of motorbikes and preemptive communications sabotage uh, prior to targeting military targets in their facilities. Although they're limited in their actual firepower, um, they're utilizing Motorbikes allows for the Islamic State to demonstrate swift adaptability towards shock and all tactics. Um, on the other hand, Al Qaeda, they're much more methodical and long term, as well as covert in their operations. Um, it's Al Qaeda that becomes integrated into the local communities um, to further understand and exploit the local grievances. So in order, so Al Qaeda, they they do a long term strategy in where. They try to understand tribal disputes between different tribes that are in a particular country, and then they exploit it. So how do they exploit it? They can say, "Wait, well, you know, we're kind of experienced fighters. We can provide you security. Uh, we can provide you We can provide you phones. We can provide you extra foods. We can help create these infrastructures like daycares in your tribe and your tribal village. All you have to do is get your elder to essentially marry our commander, mm. and then." we'll implement Sharia law, but we'll keep your, your, uh, your tribal elder in place. Um, you just turn the other cheek when we come in with our logistic, with our operations. Go ahead, Jimmy
2: It's, um, I might get flamed for this online, but it's fine because I'm, <laughs> I'm relatively, I'm relatively assured that I'm correcting this, but that is a direct reflection of the British system in Africa. From the earlier colonial days mm-hmm. in West Africa, South Africa, East Africa, where the British would come in, they would find, as it were, the best boxing contender in the region. They could uphold their values, <laughs> he didn't mean that. provide their, <laughs> <laughs> uh, provide them provide them uh, exclusive trading rights, um, and arm them before their rivals, the France or the Dutch yeah. or the Belgians, come in. And that is a huge part of. Um, what's still going on is it's it's the clan politics that really dominate the day not so much in the coastal regions anymore because Mm -hmm. they have modernized more but as was mentioned earlier now that the conflict's moving inland the strategy really like this is nothing new this isn't this isn't a major you know like reflects to anything that's come up in the geopolitical situation in africa it's it's really just the same sorts of strategies put forward. I would even argue that there's a blend of the French system in the sense that, okay, you can be part of this greater Islamic community. Mm -hmm. Um, The French were notorious in African colonialism for um, separating themselves from the British. Like, okay, well, the British were very you are going to do your thing, but you're going to fall under our system and we're going to give you a great deal of independence as long as there's trade rights. Right. Um, Whereas the French system was Everyone has the potential to be French, and I believe that I believe that the modern I believe that the modern Islamists um, in the Sahel region are foaming at the mouth to do a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. No, the, uh, as soon as you mentioned the colonialism part, I kind of felt like
1: I had to say something about that. You were well. You're obviously right about the British part. Basically, throughout throughout their foreign colonies in Africa, they would basically just. They basically do a indirect rule system where they would let the local chieftains or let the local tribal leaders mm-hmm. do whatever what stuff all what the Botswana, Nigeria. Nigeria. I won't even honestly say South Africa. Why? Because they put enough they put enough white people in there to basically say, Okay, you're a dominion now. But um Come basi- on Rhodesia <laughs> Rhodesia's a different story we can get into uh, later. Rhodesia. But um <laughs> <laughs> J. J. but um <laughs> a but no like with that was their that was the british general policies indirect well, they did this all for their african territories they did it in india mm-hmm. specifically First with States. the rajas and yeah like you said with france literally i'm not gonna lie how i categorize france is they kind of just were said all right here's our here's our um proposal become french or don't have rights take your
0: pick no, or don't live. It's, it's, <laughs> right. it's not even right. I would
2: I would argue know. that it was more of being a subject of France or being mm. French. But the one thing I noticed least with French colonialism is they wanted
1: the Africans in their colonies to assimilate with the French culture, specifically. It
2: was largely unsuccessful, except oh, for, yeah. for very rare cases. But the overall sentiment wasn't a, hey, in one generation... Mm-hmm. in Senegal or um, you know uh, Ivory Coast or you know, the other predominantly, like, particularly West African colonies. It wasn't so much a, hey, you guys are French now, mm-hmm. you're gonna do this. It turned into more of a sustained effort where they set up schools. Um, missionaries, um, I'm an upstate New York guy and we have a lot of close relations to South Canada. Trust me, I'll tie this in. Um, <laughs> but um, a lot of those Jesuit, French, priests and missionaries that came over did the same thing they did in Africa mm-hmm. with the Native American populations. Yep. It's, it's, we're not expecting you to become French. We're expecting your children to learn your traditions and speak French, and then their children to come over and be almost fully integrated. Same and thing so they had children. It's, it's sort of similar to the yeah. thing they wanted
1: to do in Algeria, even when that was considered like the prized colony of Africa for the French.
2: Right, right. exactly. And, Jimmy,
3: to your point about that, uh, historically speaking, from the successful case studies of history from colonization, integration can take, you know, on average, about three generations until your, full, your children are speaking that language, they are, you know, sympathetic with the culture, the government of the, whatever the host country is. and to go to the Algerian point and kind of circle back to the wild, wild west you can see in the Sahel now is the way in which the French left Algeria. Yeah. Um, oh, that so big. they had built hospitals and schools and <laughs> laboratories even, lots right. of modern infrastructure and when they left, they destroyed all of it. True. Well, the thing war was, and it, 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 it the sent them back to the the stone ages pretty much before the French had ever been there. It Turned thing, back into a tribal nation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, the thing that people need to know about Algeria, though, like I said earlier,
1: Algeria was considered like the prize colony of France. Heck, it was considered a part of the French metropole, for even after way after before the uh, before World War Two. It and and it was so That's right. it was so important to them that I think it was about one tenth of the entire population was ethnic French, mm-hmm. and they modernized the entire coastal region of Algeria. And when yeah, it was if I'm pretty sure even there was a coup to try to, com- to make sure that they did not leave. France, Algeria when they when the French government was debating giving him independence. Yeah. That's how important Algeria was to the French back then. E- I will I, I will
0: have to expand that scope because when the um, Algerian I don't want to call them jihadists, uh, began their coup attempts beginning in the fifties, you also have to understand what else was going on at that point. You had the Suez Crisis. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, uh, when you had like, the Vietnam War and so on and so forth, uh, you know, a lot of French sympathizer right wing Alger- of French Algerians and, uh, along the coast. They were conducting their operations. Um, there was large-scale terrorism um, being conducted in Paris because of uh, French operations um, in Algeria. Hence, why the pressure was just to eventually let Algeria go. Um, it wasn't because France wanted to. It was literally because the United States and a few other countries, like, look, it's only going to get worse after you just literally humiliate. It. You're literally about to go to war with Nasser right. because he nationalized the Suez. Um, at the same time, we see reports of what the French are doing in Algeria. Not making the situation any better. You have terrorism going on in Paris. Let it go. So that started the course of um, Algerian independence. But to your point, and to Jack Jack's points too, about French behaviors in West Africa. In a way, they still do it today. Um, France, when it comes to counterinsurgency or any type of military operations in West Africa, they want to do they want to do it unilaterally they still look at west africa as essentially theirs um this is a good
1: segue point into well, right. this topic something i want to mention with that is the fun thing with well exactly what you said the yeah, french consider west africa still there. so there they still hold a lot of influence and they've been very influential in the region mm-hmm. since since their independence and one thing i want to point out is if you look at the histories of many of the former french colonies in west africa all of them gained independence within the span of a week. Well, yeah. That doesn't happen normally for
4: any country. It doesn't. Well, well, part of the reason the French were so happy to pull out politically is they still had economic domination over that whole zone. Right. And and I'm not sure how much uh, research anyone's kind of done into this, but France still exercises economic control over West Africa to this day, Mm -hmm. specifically the country we've been talking about, the Sahel, through the CFA franc and i'm not exactly sure exactly what it stands for but it is it is a currency that is used by by 15 african nations mm-hmm. and it is the coins and the currency both are printed um, through france's state bank mm-hmm. and france at all times holds on to 50% of all that currency mm-hmm. so france has control over the the monetary policy of 15 West African nations mm-hmm. and Central African nations. So that's how it's able to kind of justify its presence through uh, military and diplomatic means in West Africa, through that economic hold. But Samaj, do you have any anything else you want to kind of expand on that?
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I mean for example, when Macron, I mean, for when Macron became president, one of the first things that he did was he demanded reparations from Haiti. Um, I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I actually, I wrote a piece on this, um, on terrorism in the Sahel to the geopolitical monitor last year, last July, talking about all of this. Um, And it's just, it's demonstrating that French unilateralism in West Africa, especially in the Sahel, is not going to resolve the situations of Islamic jihadism um, in the region. And quite, quite frankly, in some aspects, it's only going to further fuel this Islamic jihadi slash lord militia cycle of violence in the Sahel. Um, Dropping precision-guided munitions and doing uh, tactical raids is not going to stop um, these Islamic organizations, um, especially across five massive African nations. Um, the best way to do it is literally, it's a long process, I get it, is literally nation-building. Um, but, by the initiative being taken by said African nations, and them being supported by United States,
4: France, etc. Well, and, and the key to this is any successful nation is you need a stable currency. That's, that's the long and short of it. And one of the problems with the CFA franc that I didn't talk about is that France has pegged it to the Euro, yeah. which, which keeps the franc stable, but it also hampers the ability of these different African governments to lend out this franc to new businesses. They, if they do loan it out, they have to loan out money at, at much higher interest and with a lot more strings attached, which limits investment opportunities, limits entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. limits employment, it's, which in turn spurs these does, uh, recruitment from young men to these one the organizations. Friends. I forgot which
1: French politician said this, but he said that the for this fact, is one of the reasons why France is still considered a great power, or even just a power in general. And without this, they would be nothing more than a third-tier country because of that factor only.
4: Yeah, that was that was uh, the foreign minister, uh, Jubay. I think his name was. Anyone? Anyway, go ahead.
2: I have a fundamental issue with Not so much your solution, Wainwright, but just the the idea of an African nation in general, and this applies to almost all of, as as it were, black Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, These borders were not drawn up by African peoples. These were borders that were drawn up post-World War II. Um, They do not reflect in any sort of way... uh, Tribal, religious, cultural, mo- probably arguably most important linguistic lines in Africa. And it's the issue that still plagues. Um, to not speak out of turn, no, good. Um, East Africa is, is again, is my, my research baby, as it were. And you see um, a tremendous amount of issue with this. Ethiopia controls a large Somali population. Um, Somalia is resentful of this. It is the most simplistic example that I can come up with, but it is prevalent throughout all of West Africa, Central Africa, and East Africa, um, and to some extent South Africa. You you have these you have this idea that I believe is inherent, not you particularly, Wayne, right, but just in general, like we have this idea that oh, we need to strengthen this country, we need to strengthen this country, we need to strengthen this country. Well, the idea of having these nations is rooted in, excuse my language, white dog shit. It's not, it's not a place where you're going to build a foundation of statehood upon. Uh, they don't have a, a sense of nationality. It doesn't exist. There is not an identity um, in many of these places outside of the large urban enters of, urban centers, excuse me, the academic centers, that we are a Nigerian people. We are a Ghanan people. Um, that one might be a little bit more true sure than others. We are not Ethiopian people. That doesn't exist. They still relate to um, their, their clan, their tribe. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that so long as we acknowledge it. Um, mm-hmm. Is the redrawing of borders necessary? it would be as much pain as it would be as a solution, in my opinion. And the way a lot of African
4: policymakers are thinking how to get around this is not treat what you've been talking about as a national problem, but as a regional problem. So I'll, I'll take it back to West Africa. The economic community of, of West Africa, ECOS, they propose that uh, all existing national currencies, including the eight of those 15 ECOWAS countries that use the franc, the CFA franc, they replace their national currencies with something called the eco, or the Echo, however you want to pronounce it. And they've extended, they want to try and adopt this new currency by 2027, but the problem is none of the West African countries have met um, the three necessary criteria to adopt this currency. And so it's a way to get around that problem of, like, state sovereignty, even though, you know, there's, there's no real... Cohesion there. West like the African Confederation. I'm sorry.
0: Like the, the East African um, Economic Community, um, essentially doing the same. Thing. Yes, I don't
4: know. I don't know exactly the background behind that. If you guys want to talk about it, that's that's great. I, I just I'm just saying there's there's a lot of proposals going on, on how to to stabilize West Africa, but none of them have really worked so far. So we haven't found that great solution yet. A lot
2: of it really does come back to what is Africa good for? I mean, in the global sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a in a in the modern day, the the policymaker and even I mean, as far as from Russia all the way to the Western uh, the Western world, whether it be Europe or the United States, looks at Africa the same way we look at South America in a lot of senses is, is in an economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, petrol, Nigeria, huge gold, um, certain countries in Africa. Cobalt, cobalt from uh, Congo. Earth yeah, elements, exactly, right. and that is still how um, the government maybe through national corporations maybe through direct taxation if the academic that economic system happens to be a little bit luckier than others is how they are in their buck Uh, that's how they prosper Um, one of the huge issues and this does go back to and i hate to be the guy that always has to bring it back to colonialism but in africa it is wholly relevant in modern times to do this is looking at the cash crop ideology mm-hmm. of, of of France, Portugal, Belgium, and uh, the United Kingdom. And it's, okay, well, if these guys can provide for us this crop that we need to bring back to our manufacturers to make this, we'll send them back what they need you know, to get by. And this ideology... Um, has prevailed to this day. I mean, again, I'm going to bring it back to Ethiopia, and I, I don't want to get off topic. I don't want to get super off topic, but that, it's just what I know. And Ethiopian coffee, why, if you're if you're a farmer in Ethiopia, why would you farm grain or um, one of the or like do you get into husbandry when you can do coffee, and you're famed for your coffee, and you're going to get a better fuck out of it? And then if there happens to be some bug or some agricultural plague that comes along that you're not going to be able to grow coffee for three years, Neither your neighbors or anyone else. There is no agricultural, or I don't want to say no, that's, I don't believe in blanket statements. I'm getting on my Jedi here. Um, <laughs> but uh, there, there's little incentive to diversify without... Um, Without a tremendous amount of input,
4: Brian, what do you got? You've been chomping at the bit to put some input. I was yeah, watching. Them. Yeah, I'm you like saw like, it. Yeah, you? Brian and then no, Jack, Jack. Because I want to go back to what Jimmy
1: was talking about earlier, involving how the maps of the countries in Africa are not really made because of like not remain are made specifically because it separates certain groups, and it brought me it made me think of a different. Reason, thing it actually brought me to think about south africa and how they were able to hold their system of apartheid for so long and for those who don't know apartheid was a system for uh, when for basically whites ruling the entire country for god knows how many years and um in south africa what they used to say a lot the at least the politicians South africa during apartheid would say is the whites held the majority which would sound like a the word, the stupidest statement we've ever heard, but the reason for that was because they didn't base that system off of, oh, white, black, Indian, whatever. They based it off the tribes of Africa. You could look at the Xhosa people, you could look at the, uh, the Zulu people and all the, all the way
4: to South Africa. Yes. I have, to you it's the Ethiopian. I can take this out. back to North Africa. And I think the same I thing mean, applies. It the same I think it's like my one point at uh, least, right, uh, but
6: um, no, same my thing. point
1: is what South Africa used to do back then is they used to separate all the tribes in South Africa and they would, they would use their hatreds against each other to force them to fight against each other. And because of that, it would separate them, and they would never, and because of that, yeah, the white population at the time had about 20% of the population. If you separate all these tribes together, they got maybe about to 10%, maybe 15 at most at times, and because of that, they were able to hold on to power so easily, that's the same thing you could look at when it comes to European colonization, all the other parts of Africa during that time. And if you want to go into West Africa again.
3: <laughs> yes, so, uh, North Africa as it stands um, the inter, you know the international boundaries of each state of each state was drawn every ten tribes every ten ethnic groups the state boundaries were drawn by France by Belgium by Germany so. That's why North Africa, it's... Yeah, you have... You have tribes who now cross over into different lines. Because it was illegal at the time for tribes to cross the international lines to go to another state. Mm-hmm. Because they were drawn. Every ten tribes, you have a new country, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, so you, were, you were putting ten different tribes into one country and expecting it to go well. Like, they were all the exact same tribe. <laughs> I mean, I just... Talk about a fundamental like just lack of knowledge. I, I wouldn't even call it a misunderstanding. It's just not even an understanding at all.
0: You could say the same thing about even the sykes Pico Agreement. And that um, was, yep. Look at even the small case. I wouldn't say small, but look at Lebanon, for example. Um, but they stopped doing the census. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, yeah.
3: no, it doesn't matter. Well, I'll talk about that later <laughs> if we get to
0: it. Yeah. I like, was uh, like, how you stop doing the census in the 50s? Right. <laughs> so not.
3: I, I want to circle back around to one thing that I talked about earlier. Uh-huh. And Wainwright, you asked me about, I think it was you at least, about the, <laughs> <Who knows>? um, <laughs> you know, the, the killings of minorities yeah. in the Sahel. Oh, is that you, Aubrey? It's somebody. Yeah. It's just oh, okay. just religious. Well, right, okay. Well <laughs> like, somebody asked. So so here's the deal. Right. Someone asked. Jack Jack was you know, talking to us. So. And <laughs> it was. had me thinking. So <laughs> oh my God. to cover my basis here, the doctrine of so religious minorities, it, you could be Christian, you could be, you know, any variation of Christianity, or even Shiite in any of the countries that are in the Sahel, because they're all predominantly Hanafi school of jurisprudence, Sunni Muslims. And so, essentially why you see Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State killing and targeting Catholics, Christians, Jews, um, you know, Shiites, is because of a term, Tawid, which means the oneness of God. Mm -hmm. So they target Christians because... Christians have the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we do not believe that God is just one person. So that's why they have it out against Christians. But here's the thing
0: though. I don't know if you know this as of last year. So but the new Iranian president, he said, and I quote I really that should, yeah, in the new I'm gonna get to that. In the new administration, all capacities of Iran for cooperation with African countries will be seriously activated. And, of time. Oh, so, um, get to it. <laughs> so, Iran does have a history of working with Sunnis um, if the opportunity is there for them to get something in return. Hamas. They they don't cooperate until they do. Right. In Nigeria, there is a minority Shiite community. Correct. That actually does. They actually did support the ideology of the Islamic revolution um, in in Iran, Um, where structure, export and revolution, everything, there is a small Shiite minority group that actually does look up to Iran. Um, As alluded to a few moments ago, Iran also does have working relationships with Sunni organizations. Um, where the Hamas Um, in some cases there were notions that they would cooperate with I think it was um, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan Um, and that should be taken seriously especially under this new very I won't say right one but very conservative um, Iranian president who is very close knit with the Ayatollah um Go, go ahead, Aubrey.
5: I, I just wanted to add on to that, just some of Iran's growing influence in Africa. And um, I've, I've tracked uh, a lot of just the weapon smuggling that comes from Iran through the horn mm-hmm. and ends up on the horn of Somalia. And these weapon smugglers will essentially proliferate all these... Mm-hmm. Iranian Iranian weapons whether they're from the Iran-Iraq war all throughout Africa mm-hmm. and uh, the security forces in Africa are really just so they're 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 very weak and they're not uh, they really can't do anything about Iranian weapons just ending up in the hands of all these insurgents mm-hmm. and uh, and th- th- they don't even need weapon sales they can just no. do it Freely. Well, the thing with Iran, the- interesting enough,
0: and this is how this also ties with the Sahel and how a lot of these organizations get their um, their money to do their attacks, is predominantly black market. Uh, and then there's two ways, if you're looking, two now major ways um, to get into the black markets in Africa. That's one, Somalia, the libertarian paradise state. Um, <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. and Libya post-Gaddafi, thanks Obama yes. um, we're going to talk about Libya later so, <laughs> so but these are two especially once Gaddafi fell um, a lot of these organizations utilize Libya not just for black market to get ammunition but also human trafficking but to even get into other markets as well because now there's no longer this the centerpiece personalist dictator uh, who gets a Botox injection every three years because he doesn't want to get old. Um, but now we are a serious problem there with Iran. If you look at their operations in South America that we talked about in our previous um, episode with Hezbollah and the tribes, the tri-border area in South America where they make up to about $500 million a year just in black market sales. Um, imagine. The amount of influence through illicit tradings uh, in these rural areas of Africa um, that Iran could potentially possess Um, now in this wild west. Again, Iran thrived in the immediate and then long-term aftermath of the fall of ISIS. They thrived. They essentially created the popular mobilization forces and then they're deeply embedded into the Iraqi uh, government. Um, They thrived in Syria where Hezbollah was able to dispatch soldiers to protect Bashar, but then also remind Bashar that the only reason why you're actually here is because of Iran. (laughs) So, you know, you might want to act accordingly. Um, And then you have them in Lebanon, you have them in uh, the West Bank. Uh, you have them at the Yemen. Yemen, the Bab el mandab Strait um, now they can get into Somalia, they can get into Nigeria, they can get into the Sahel 5, they can well, get into Mozambique but well, that's
1: the thing, Like the Sahel could basically be the next cash cow for
0: just no literally, in general I would argue it's already <laughs> it <have> to be. <laughs> how do we scam the Sahel <laughs> but the other thing is that it's too unstable for Russia Right. It's too unstable for China, so
3: that leaves literally yeah. a country. Oh, go ahead. JJ. You can only have
2: a, a Muslim country
3: literally. operate in, in Iran that area. as well, already sponsor of terror is the perfect. It's the perfect it's a country, country that has nothing to lose. It has nothing to lose. No, no, no. It the It was like right. that wasn't
0: me. It
2: was you. No, The wasn't. IRCG and Cuds Force <laughs> are experts at experts. this kind of maneuver. I think one of the big things also to look at when you consider this the Sahel in general is that you have to link it intrinsically to the, um, the quote-unquote tropical nation south of it, mm-hmm. and it has to be related to the, um, the Mediterranean nations north of it. Yes. Now, I want to dispel a rumor publicly that I know that you guys probably have this in your brains already, but that the idea that crossing the Sahara is possible unless you're a dude with a candle and three buckets of water... Um, It's not the case. Uh, The the Sahara, not the Sahel, but the Sahara, is very crossable, um, and it has been historically for hundreds, if not thousands of years, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. those routes are what is really feeding this entire thing. Well, Berbers have been doing it for... Oh, the Berber
3: people have done it forever. (laughs) They've done it forever. No, no,
4: actually, Senegal, Mortania, Morocco. Actually, i got a quick question. So I I, I assume the Sahel was passable through where the Nile ran. But where are the other main kind of choke points?
2: Tunisia down, um, all the way from Morocco down the coast. There's another route that way. Um, There's another route, uh, I believe, at least two through Mali. Uh, (laughs) Jack, (laughs) Jack, Jack, please. What are the choke points? Um, You're on the same point as me, baby. I just want
3: to dispel, I guess, what everyone's thinking. The Sahel is very different from the Sahara. Right. The Sahel is grasslands. It's Savannah, essentially. Yes, it is Savannah. Like Georgia? You're not very I'm
0: different savannah. Very no, different savannah. No, that, that was a beast. Why did everybody look
3: at me like, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <that's, laughs> <yeah>. The point <laughs> being is it's not, it's not desert. It is, right. you have grass, shrubs, mm-hmm. trees even, and thanks to, because the climate crisis has been waging war on this hell, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have statistics in front of me I can get into well, it.
4: Read them off, actually. That might add context to it.
3: So, the Sahel has uh, temperatures rising one and a half times faster than the global average. For every for every one degree Celsius rise in temperature, you're looking at about seven percent increase in precipitation. So three to five percent, three to five degrees in the next 50 years, but by, by 2050, my apologies. So 21 to 35 percent precipitation. Uh, again, I think Samaji brought it up, like Chad. Uh, went from 15,000 square miles of fresh water to less than 500 in 60 years. So seven countries down to two, Chad and Cameroon. Mm -hmm. Um, The degradation of over 80% of the Sahel's farmland and their herding, Mm -hmm. you know, their grasses. Mm -hmm. And that's just caused a bunch of different conflicts. Mm-hmm. You have herders moving from the northern Sahel into the south, which is typically the farming land, mm-hmm. and it's causing conflict. I mean, thousands of people have been killed. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's a mess. It's a hotbed for terrorism.
0: Before we um, transition again, I want to give some more statistics on, because some, some people may ask, well, so what? You know, why do I care about Africa? Um, here's what, here's why. I think people should give a damn. Um, So there's just a few uh, statistics. Africa is expected to possess the largest population growth over the next 80 years. Um, One point is going to go from 1.3 billion people to 4.3 billion people by the year 2100. By, By that same year, by 2100, four African countries are projected um, to double more or to double their population. Um, so the Democratic Republic of Congo population will increase 304% to 362 million people. Ethiopia will grow by 156% to 244 million people. Tanzania will grow by 378% to 286 million people. And Egypt will grow by 120 percent to 225 million people. Unlike other parts of the world, African countries possess young populations but high fertility rates, which also contributes to the cycle of violence. Um, in Sub-Saharan Africa alone, for example, their fertility rate is 4.6, so almost five children per per hour <laughs> per person. Therefore, signaling. There's a trend that by the year 2100, 50% of global births are projected to originate in Africa. As the median age for the entire continent is just 19 years old, um, rapid population growths uh, are going to cause major disruptions to the economic progress that we've talked talked about. Government attempts uh, to combat malnutrition, starvation, and poverty connected to climate change. Along with deficits in uh, healthcare, electricity, and education networks, which we see in what provides growth to insurgents uh, and Islamic uh, militants, um, these social ails over the past twenty years are some of the main um, areas that have contributed to the growth of terrorism. Um, but more specifically, if you look at the Muslim parts of these area of these particular countries, if you look at Nigeria, for example. There's very, 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 very little development in northern Nigeria, literally, to the point where that provides Boko Haram with the opportunities to not only exploit uh, household grievances, um, but also to exploit the lack of government effort um, and presence and security authority in northern northeastern Nigeria. The same goes for Mali. The same goes for Chad. The same goes for Burkina Faso. Who in twenty nineteen, the civilian deaths to terrorism rose five hundred some eighty percent, five hundred eighty percent from terrorism linked civilian deaths. Go ahead, Chad.
3: To your point, Samaj. Um, while climate change might exacerbate conflict, the lack of economic growth or even an economy to really begin with in much of this region leads people, it, you know, it makes it easy to recruit mm-hmm. these populations because... That's what I think's the ultimate problem. Boko Haram, yeah, right the Islamic yeah. State, AQIM, they can go to these tribes and say, hey, you're starving, you know, your kids are going to die if you don't do something. Join us, we're going to go raid this this rich village or raid a military base, take their rations, take their weapons, take whatever money we can find. And that's... it." basically joining these groups in certain regions of Sahel is your best chance of livelihood. And it's sad, but it's it's the bottom line. It's it's the truth. If you want your family to survive, you to survive yourself, your best chance is to join one of these organizations. Well, I don't want to leave the podcast like just doom and gloom. You know, I mean, it's
4: all Africa, the world is wearing. Yeah, well, not really, <laughs> really. I mean, even Africa has its bright spots, and I wanted to talk about. Hopefully, you guys can help me talk about. No, I can't. <laughs> uh, Easy there. Two current bright spots, which I, I think are Botswana and Rwanda, and then yeah. maybe a model for what a prosperous African country could look like. I and when I say that, I'm thinking of Gaddafi's Libya. Um, but I really yeah well I mean this is gonna be something we can debate Jimmy Jimmy just made no fucking way, but, <laughs> yeah. but but no I mean I mean, we can try no on
0: hot water Wayne right here well, well,
4: I'll, I'll talk about one I don't know if you guys know a lot about Botswana even you know, Miss, Mr. South Africa, Brian Reeves,
3: might not know too much about that country. <laughs> <Yeah, that's laughs>
4: but uh, when... Completely
3: landlocked um, by one nation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, put know. that out there. One ja- of three in the world. Yes. <laughs> we're, yes we're talking Jack-Jack about JSOF here. No, we're not.
4: Jack-Jack has, has, has a good summary of it, but I'll, do, I'll just start from independence and then quickly work my way up to the present day with Botswana. Uh, so when Botswana got independence in 1966, which is about the same time a lot of the Sahel no. countries got theirs, it, it was the second poorest country in the world. I mean, Botswana is about the size of Spain. It had 12 kilometers of paved roads, 22 college graduates to manage the whole government, and no hospitals. Like this, it was worse than Afghanistan, if, if that could be believed
2: and it's know, not believed <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it it's, it's,
3: it's possible it, it can get worse than Apple. at least at afghanistan at, had the, opium no right? at the time and afghanistan
4: was more wealthy and prosperous than Botswana. Oh, yeah they had the
3: the opium yeah. and the atta they were all
4: right <laughs> and, and even worse than, than this regarding Botswana, i'm talk about afghanistan later uh, there was no formal economy so it was all substance farming and then herding. that was that was it there was nice. nothing
1: else but that's because back then when Botswana was still a colony, the main thing that was really giving it any profit was the railroads going it up to Zimb- to Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, however you want to call it in Zambia. There really was nothing else. It was a transit zone. Yeah, it
4: was, it was yeah, basically a transit
1: zone. Like literally literally Cecil Rhodes wanted the territory for a transit area up to the up to uh, Alexandria.
4: But but even like with this bleed past behind it, you look at Botswana today. It's the world's largest producer of gems, specifically diamonds. Um, it's one of the only, it's of only like a handful of middle income countries in Africa. Botswana is one of them, Rwanda, I think. Not Rwanda, there's a couple more of well, them. That's not
1: surprising, it's right yeah. next to the Kimberley Mine. So, but there's a reason
2: it's there, and I'll get to that. Go ahead. When? Okay, so how many of you guys grew up around a Native American reservation? Y'all up in your right here. Onondaga, New York. <laughs> shout, shout out to Onondaga County. Um, but what is one thing, um, if you grew up around a Native American reservation, that happens in those areas that is? Fireworks, alcohol, drugs, gambling. Lack of taxation. And lack of taxation. That's the big thing. So when you look at Lesotho or Botswana or these, these, I guess, I don't want to call them a microstate. I think I might be doing too dirty. But you start to see that their economic interest, a lot of the time, is just being contrarian to their neighbors and that ties a lot to their success exactly is it sustainable most of the time it is it's it's not a bad thing we don't hold them against any particular policy but when you become a viable free tax zone as it were that's going to go into your favor when you can look at investments around your neighbors and no one else can buy into why wouldn't South African uh, businessmen try to influence the, pol- like the politics in a landlocked country that essentially is secured by Brian Reeves's army? <laughs> <laughs> well, Botswana and you're right, the South
4: African businesses did come up into Botswana, but my point is Botswana, specifically the, the leader, the first president, uh, Sir Suretse Kama of Botswana, he was able to play those interests off better than anyone else what he did is he he said, when Botswana gained independence, we are going to keep these foreign interests here and they are going to train local workers. And once those local workers are trained and educated, then we will start phasing these countries out. And he was able to do so very prudently. Um, And one of the reasons he was able to do it is, just right from the start, he was one of the few African leaders who completely rejected Marxism as a dominant philosophy. He said, this is not going to work for us. We need to adopt low-import tariff rates, low-corporate income taxes, and we need to maintain the rule of law that Britain introduced to us. So he kept a strong judiciary, strong legislature, uh, as far well as the economy did, and he did not try and consolidate power behind himself as the executive. So he was able to implement all these reforms, and in addition to that, he was able to entice uh, mining companies to beers, right? All these, all these, all these Boer and, and, and South African companies to come in, look for new uh, resources—copper, tungsten, nickel—that were in Botswana—and he was able to say, "Look, we'll give you a 50% share, and then we'll we'll split up the rest of, of the investment um, shares amongst different holders." And Kama, he never originally, like with De Beers, right? He had—I think Botswana had like a 5% share of the whole enterprise. And over time, he was able to get that up to a fifty percent share. So Botswana now owns the beers, and they've called it a different thing. They own that company. But my point is, Botswana was able to work the system in a way that no other African country has been able to do, and they've gotten prosperous. I think their their GDP per capita is like what I think eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. Like that's right. very yeah, that's, yeah, that's very. Pretty- I mean, and that 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 model has. I don't know if other African countries can replicate it, but it's something they should look at and say, "Damn, we should maybe emulate this a little bit."
0: Uh, and then I was going to allude to that. Like you have nations, like for example, uh, use the Congo for example. You had Mobutu Sese Seko from nineteen seventy to when he died,
6: mm-hmm.
0: and he, when I say pillaged the Congo, but that was because he played, unfortunately, the Cold War game. Yeah. Um, didn't really care about um, really developing the Congo for so long as that his external supporters, uh, who I won't name. uh, Name them, Snitch. Who I won't (laughs) name. (laughs) Um, Kept him in power because of the resources that the Congo possesses. Um, The same thing can be said in the way of Nigeria. Nigeria, for the most part, Post independence have always been under some sort of military as dictatorship, mm-hmm. where their political institutions, same thing with the Congo, same thing with a lot of these nations, their, their political institutions are kept weak intentionally mm-hmm. so that the executive, their cronies that are in these strategic sectors, like mining is very crucial um, across Africa, um, they're able to essentially stuff their pockets. Um, and don't really care about development in the sense of let's say Botswana, for example, um, with all the non-government organizations that are in like the Congo, um, and just the notions of you know the resource cor- uh, curse. So basically, what the resource curse is that you have so much beautiful mineral resources or lucrative resources that you're prone to fall into major instability. Now that's not always the case. Look at Saudi Arabia, um, but in Africa. On a lot of the global south, it unfortunately tends to be the case. So, although Botswana is a very good a very good example of an individual who was able to observe um, the the notions of what prosperity can, what prosperity, the rule of law can bring. Looking at the unfortunate conditions of other African nations as being victims of direct Cold War tampering mm-hmm. between the Soviet Union. And uh, the United States is where is how we got to the predicament that we're in now. Look, Angola. Um, yeah, and
4: I'm not saying that every African country could have turned out like Botswana. What mm-hmm. I am saying is a lot of African leaders, when independence came, these leaders they chose ideology over pragmatism. Mm-hmm. They said we're hitching our we're hitching our wagon to somebody, whether it be uh, Marxism or something else, and. That really doomed them to the situation yeah. they're in now, and I'm not saying this is perpetual. Like I'm saying, I'm putting Botswana up as a case study and saying Africans can do this. It's possible, yeah. and no one knows about Botswana, why so I'm bringing it up. So, what do you got, Brian?
1: Well, like you just said, with the a bunch of African nations, like when they were all becoming independent was literally in the middle of a Cold War, so they saw the double signs from either side and just said, "Hey, we support." we support communism we support capitalism and then they got dollars from out of the US to Russia. Um Botswana we
4: were oh, real they, quiet about it. They they were they were very friendly not I won't say friendly. They were not no, friendly with but, South Africa. Well they this were, is the they, thing I they, want
1: to say with Botswana right? when it comes to South Africa. They used heavily the South African markets to be they able did. to raise their economy, but the thing that sacrificed them for that was actually they could not say anything against South Africa or its apartheid. Out of the many countries, whenever South Africa did something, it could be the Sharpsville Massacre or any other event, the two countries that never said anything were Botswana and Malawi.
4: And that's my point. They chose pragmatism over ideology. They were like, okay, this is a bad thing, human rights, yeah, 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 but we gotta be quiet about it to maintain our sovereignty and our prosperity. Is that a bad thing? You, some you might think that's a bad thing. I I personally think I'm looking at Botswana and saying maybe they made the right choice. Well, it's the realistic situation. approach. if yeah, you, want, if you ge- prefer economic
1: <laughs> prosperity for your people as well as your country compared to like just succumbing to ideologies, and that's probably the best option you and have. And what is the, ge- G- the
2: Kwame Nkrumah question? Well, and, we're,
1: and we're the ge- <laughs> what the
4: geopolitical pit, right? So looking geopolitically at it, Namibia, South Africa, right, Zim, uh, Rhodesia. So Botswana had to make that choice. They, they were enclosed on all sides by regimes, which might not That's look too kind of... actually about.
3: one thing I do want to talk about. Well, maybe, but Jack, do, do you have something to add to that before we go back to Brian? Kind of. I just have something about the successes of certain African states. Mm-hmm. And so I had a very interesting conversation with a man in Dubai this summer who was from Gambia. And from, for those listening who don't know where Gambia is, it's a tiny little country in West Africa. It's a river, right? Uh, literally, yes. <laughs> it's, a about, it's, river. It's, <laughs> literally, it's literally about um, like two miles, maybe, north and south of a river. Uh, the United States, for example, is 87,000 times larger than Gambia. Um, that's not the point. So what he told me, and it makes perfect sense, was that Africa is full of I mean, it's a population center of the world. There are so many of the most populated, Nigeria and Egypt, for example, giant countries population wise, and they're cheap labor, but a lot of them are uneducated. And so it makes it very easy for these European or Western nations to come in and say, hey, I'm educated, I wanna do this. I wanna wanna harvest your minerals, your diamonds, what have you. And the people listen because they're gonna end up making more money from that than they would from anything they do on their own because it's largely subsistence farming or trading. And so what he told me that I found so interesting is he goes, what Africa really needs is they need successful people from these countries to go to Europe, to go to America, and to get a proper education. And come back. And then to come back and direct their people on a correct path they go we're, we're we're not you know we're sick of listening to, to 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 white people to Westerners coming over here and telling us what to do because we ultimately just end up getting taken mm-hmm. advantage of but if one of our own per- people went over to one of these countries in the West got a good education and came back and attempted to actually build something there's no reason that they couldn't mm-hmm. even be president of the country that was mm-hmm. eye-opening to there's, I'm literally blanking on his name.
0: Um, is the Nigerian billionaire, and he's literally, it's like eleven billion dollar project where he's literally re- trying to revamp the Nigerian energy infrastructure.
4: I'll refine his name. And yeah. he's literally Put like, it yeah. I'm tired. Basically,
0: essentially what Jack Jack just said. Why can't we do it by ourselves? It's our resources. It's our country. Um, these are our afflictions. Nigeria provides at least 70% of the energy resources West West Africa needs. And he sees this um, as not only trying to revamp the refineries uh, but also looking at developing power plants, looking at electrical grids to provide more energy to northern Nigeria which honestly would diminish the the presence, long-term-wise, of Boko Haram. If you provide mm. these opportunities, even as basic as electricity, uh, which could then go into further industrialization schemes, then the power of these insurgent organizations over time will diminish. Now, granted, that'll just make you their prime number one target, but he's so far as putting his own face to name... He's doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing. In the yes. Where he's like, you know what? I'm 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 over it. We're tired of allowing these foreign organ uh, these foreign companies to come into Nigeria. They do not uphold environmental standards. Um, they they essentially take away our minerals, our resources. They give us the scraps. It should not be that way. And so he's utilizing his money to revamp the entirety of Ni- Nigeria's security uh, apparatus, which will, in general um assist in transforming nigeria into the power that it actually is
1: i sort of lost my train of thought well you lost (laughs) hold on just a second a picture of
0: botswana
1: yes (laughs) i am i was thinking of trying to go back to botswana a little bit the one thing that actually a story i just remembered which gives me a little bit of hope was actually in 2019 when i went to japan because when I was there, I met a, I actually met a Rwandan citizen who who's sp- well, obviously it's Rwanda, they speak English over there, but no, he, but no, he was yeah, very, yeah. I remember him being very smart, we had a very good conversation and stuff, and the thing with Japan is they do have a few African, they do have a few African students that go there on scholarship, and to get in those scholarships, you have to be really, really smart, like way smarter than most of us in this fr- in this freaking room to be honest they already be
0: smarter than me. I'm <laughs>
1: but no that i would say that gives me hope for what samaj is literally talking about where you need entrepreneurs to go into the countries of their origin to and, and it sounds like that.
4: it sounds like that's starting to become a thing um jimmy do you have something to add off that
2: yeah just uh to the education point of uh like african leaders going overseas and there there's cases up the wazoo of uh, African leaders receiving uh, Moscow educations during mm-hmm. the Soviet era, uh, Moscow educations during the modern era, um, and then Western educations, um, whether it be France, the United States, through Western like That was the other thing. A lot of their military all, officers um, other And that, that applies elsewhere throughout, uh, throughout the world as well. Mm-hmm um they have not always translated well i Mm -hmm. believe what samaj was alluding to earlier um, and please correct me if i'm wrong was the idea of getting someone that wasn't necessarily wholly politically or militarily or militar militaristically politically focused Mm -hmm. and getting someone that was generally trying to improve like an economic infrastructure of a country Mm -hmm. and then maybe thinking about politics as a secondary feature of that
4: so I want to build off that and we're going to stay in East Africa for you.
2: Oh. My Another Lord.
4: success story and I'm going to argue this and you guys can argue if you don't. Rwanda. That is a success story and Kagame, Paul Kagame, oh, the oof. president of Rwanda.
0: That's also a hard
4: one. Well, because I of the,
0: No, it is a success story. I'm yeah, I'm a great and
4: I, I got to say I I look at him and I see a guy Kagame as someone who put politics second. I mean, he literally had his whole ethnic group almost cleansed. And say we're going to try and restore some kind of stability, economic stability, in the country before we even tackle these problems. But I, yeah, I'm open to the floor, Jimmy. If you want to take first crack, Samaj, Brian, whatever.
2: Rwanda, no matter how you spin it, is always you know just same thing with Germany. Like it's it's going to come down to those, the idea of like what can they do in their immediate area. Um, we. Europe is obviously humanity's battlefield for most things Um, but when you look at Rwanda with the regional partners it's it has become a gigantic matter of how they handle it and I think that they've balanced their past very well Um, and the ethnic tensions as well it's just if it's sustainable and they have been susceptible to a lot of the border problems that their neighbors have as well so Mm -hmm. it's not it's not this peachy keen relationship. No, it's not. It's um, not. Economically, they've developed, yes. but that has made them more of a target. That,
4: that's true, and I, and I will say I will qualify my statement about being economically prosperous. I don't know if I said that, but I will say that their Rwanda's GDP per capita is around like twenty one hundred. Oh, uh, and you know, and that's compared to the world average like seventeen thousand dollars. So I mean, they have a ways to go, but I will say, kagame has done one thing and he's broken with the past of Rwanda. Before his rule or reign, or whatever you want to call it, Rwanda's economy was completely state-controlled, almost completely. And Kagame came in, and he launched a media campaign, and he actually put teeth behind this campaign. And he said, look, we're going to free up a lot of these enterprises, and we're going we're to allow private property and private ownership to kind of reign. And so there's a lot of, a lot of new entrepreneurs in, in Rwanda's capital, Kigale are coming out with new products, new ways of getting products to market, and it's it's a good thing to see. And I think they're on the right track. What do you got, Brian? Well, the only other thing I can mention
1: with Rwanda specifically is after the uh, the Civil War and the genocide that happened in the 90s, what Kagame basically did was he right away just said, listen, there is no such thing as travel divisions between our yes. people anymore. You are all yeah. Rwandans, And he no did something.
4: What. And he did something smart. He blamed the Belgians. Said, it, it is, is not, not a of bad stuff. idea yeah, and that's what Jimmy's been King
2: saying King Leopold <laughs> well Jimmy uh, what was your so favorite? He was it white dog
4: shit I, but you know it, uh, it's a foundation of yeah. white dog yeah. shit yeah Kagame took that yeah. approach oh, and, it and was. he was because nobody likes the belly let's be honest like well, just look at like, what
1: they did in
3: the Congo, and that explains They don't awful. listen to this podcast, so, like, what did they, they do? like Belgian like. waffles, all right? Right. I'm <laughs> pretty sure that was a Texan invention. I mean, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but
0: just to up. go off, of, just like I was telling you, and right, like, when we talk about success stories, you got to bring out Rwanda. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, a, within 100 days, damn near a million people died.
3: Right. Mm
0: -hmm. with machetes.
3: Right, not even small arms. Not even
0: small... Machetes. I can't
4: even imagine.
0: Door to door.
4: Yeah.
0: Man, woman, children, didn't matter what age you were, and your bodies were left there to be eaten by dogs. Wasn't that like 1.5 million, I think? We don't even know. It's... It's my fault. But to come from that, and that's why a lot of people... I remember I was in a... um, it was some sort of like a foreign affairs symposium, like a, a Q&A session. Mm-hmm. And somebody who tried to proclaim was an expert had the gall to say that, oh, United States didn't have the amount of resources to intervene in both uh, Yugoslavia, uh, well, the Bosnian War and Rwanda. Hmm. I said, I immediately I raised my hand. I said, excuse me? I said, so let me get this straight. His badge number. No, <laughs> I, 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 will, I will, Let me get this straight. The hegemonic authority, this is the 90s we're talking about,
3: right.
0: did not have global resources or institutions to get involved in both Bosnia
5: and Rwanda. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. So that's what we're talking about. Well, Samaj, there's your first problem. You didn't come to the pivot. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I,
2: uh, I think Wainwright and I talked about this, what, last night or something? You're right, we discussed. It was that um, it. after <laughs> after the Mogadishu debacle, why would the United States commit any resources into Central Africa when it already proved to be a catastrophic failure for American equipment and personnel to operate with no real logistical or... I mean operational experience in yeah. the continent. And I mean, yeah, it's fucking horrible that there's a genocide going on, but that really challenges the international community. Should the Ameri- like should the American participation in that be challenged? I would say yes, absolutely. We always should, because we're held to a higher standard, and I firmly believe, like like from like at least my own personal philosophy that yeah, like we, we need to intervene. Appropriately to these kind of situations, but from a military standpoint, how are you going to kick your your resources like Victoria? You don't. I get that. Yeah,
0: it's the notion of the UN being useless. One, and yeah. you yes. had two particular countries who have vested interest in this particular genocide. Unfortunately, one is Belgium, and the other one's France. Hmm. They both could have did something through the United
4: States. They, they, they both had ties. And they both had ties to that. They both had ties to the country. They both were there. Right, literally. Oh, they were around. literally yes. there.
1: And all they did was just take out their and
0: citizens.
4: Took the out the
1: citizens
0: right. and then told the UN nations stand back, do not or don't the peacekeepers, do don't do anything unless maybe they would do it to you. And you and peacekeepers got killed. And they still didn't do nothing. So my point is this if you see We're looking at Rwanda. And you see this genocide as, go- as horrible as it was. And you have these institutions. You have these, uh, and this goes back even to um, even down to what Boko Haram stands for, um, that you have these instances such as the genocide where you you have the notions or the ideological um, understandings of what the West is supposed to stand for. And here you have this human catastrophe going on. And you intervene in Bosnia, but then you don't even, let alone say a, a peep about what's going on in Rwanda. Now we're, we're seeing that in some of the talking points of a lot of, not just American adversaries, but even non-state actors.
5: What, what? Go ahead, go ahead, I'm I'll... I'll just say that I'm 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 a dumb American and I get, uh, I, get a lot, <laughs> I get a lot of my views from Hollywood and Hotel Rwanda is probably what really yeah uh, it was probably a good, 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 good movie, movie. Hotel good Rwanda movie. that was our high school experience. that was, that was I will yeah. recommend yeah. another one. There's another
0: double movie on Hotel yeah. R- on, um, Rwanda genocide. It's called Sometimes in April with I'm Idris Elba. Heard of that one? Yeah. Yep. That one is much more into details. Much more barbaric and as they they further demonstrate and it just Elba did an amazing job on this Great actor. and day by day um, they'll give you the statistics like day 39 this is how many people died and they're giving you the, the visuals of what it was like to be a Hutu or a Tootsie and trying to protect your family while you have literal war bands essentially with machetes and pipes going down the street basically talking about if you find a Tootsie or a Hutu, then you capture them, behead them, and you burn their bodies.
4: Um, now, Samaj, you're all doom and gloom, huh? I, no, no, but we're,
0: that's the whole point. of we're talking about a success story, yeah. you have to really understand why it's a success story. After that, they started to pass legislation yes. to where they stated, you cannot deny that this happened. If we're going to heal as a nation... Both Hutus and Tutsis. Blame the Belgians, as you should. That's right. As you should. But in order for us... Leopold. (laughs) In order for us to have a... And this is where Kagami's point started to come in. That if we're going to have a prosperous, collective
4: future... Collective, that's a key word.
0: We have to put these artificial divisions away. Mm -hmm. We're Rwandan. If we're going to... Be Rwandan. we got to be real to ourselves.
4: So I'm going to juxtapose the fact where, you know, in the 1990s, Rwandans are killing Rwandans. No trust right there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, absolutely none. And you look at it today, Rwanda's a remarkably honest place to do business. Like, in in 2017, I think Rwanda was was ranked the third least corrupt African state. It's less corrupt than South Korea, China, and Italy. That is that.
0: Me. Yeah, but, <laughs> but
4: then you think the that supposed to And then you think about that in terms of foreign direct investment, how that's yeah that, that coming in, and that is dumb. Yep. So yep. so in two thousand and seven, about eight hundred million dollars of FDI, foreign direct investment mm. was coming into Rwanda. Twenty seventeen, about one point six billion. The thing that it's no, the thing incredible. that makes me ask even more questions is how the
1: heck they are able to get so much stability than just dis- stability that now they are actually able to intervene in other countries by sending... For example, they just sent in troops into Mozambique to help with their crisis that's going on. Uh, Again, this
4: is a podcast, not a thesis. But I'm just going to say, like... (laughs) (laughs) Rwanda is another model. Like Botswana, it's a different model. Mm Because they went through different things. But it's another model. The Sahel and other places in Africa that are in trouble can look at and say, well, maybe we can adopt some ideas. Well, the thing you'd also
1: need to look at is not just... You look at some success stories and say, oh, you can do them all. But also the thing you need to look at, too, is other parts of African climates and geography. Like, for example, with Africa, one of the things that happens a lot is seasons change in multiple areas. And that's why back then Africa was heavily... People usually go around to different areas of Africa, nomads, going around Africa all the time. And that's the thing that some of these states are preventing now because one area would be rich for me rich with resources and with farming land for a few years and then once the rain season passes and goes to a different area that area becomes drier droughts it's one of the problems of africa for why it doesn't it can't fully prosper compared to maybe the united states or europe is changing weather patterns all over the continent which is, which is what i think we've been talking about throughout the podcast right,
3: right. with the hell even yeah they have Long periods of droughts, and then those droughts kill off all the shrubs and foliage, and then when it rains, it pours, and they have flush, <laughs> flash flood raining. And I assume that they takes out. away a lot of like the fertile soil. It oh, It wipes away everything. Yeah, yeah it's just basically a barren land at this point. <laughs> but,
0: you know, to that point, and even to our point, we're talking about Islamic jihadists, and then your point about the, um, the notions of Rwandans. I just found this um, Washington Post article from 2002 from the Rwandan Mufti. Mm. Oh boy. And <laughs> no, interesting. He said we have our own jihad and that is our war against ignorance between Hutus and Tutsis. Tutsis. Wow. Our jihad is to start respecting each other and living as Rwandans and as
3: Muslims. I mean listen if Go you, ahead, JJ. If you <laughs> do anything, like to unite two warring parties under the banner of one nation is a genius move yeah. It was definitely the best thing that could be done in the rwandan case true for sure and i think that's why you've seen them prosper right. the way they have today is because like we've already all mm-hmm. said before they set aside their inter-tribal inter you know even religious right even mm-hmm. their inter-religious strifes and just said you know what we're all rwandans right
0: and then they're doing hydropower <laughs> initiatives um, All kinds of infrastructure projects, projects. Yeah. literally, like they're. But then again, they're although they are prospering. Their main problem is their border with the Congo, and the Congo with uh, blood diamond smuggling. Uh, with especially in eastern Afri- Eastern Congo, um, you do have Islamic jihadi organizations. You do have uh, remnants of. Organizations, they look up to people like Joseph Kony, they do human trafficking, etc. So Rwanda does have a border problem with the Congo. However, Paul Kagame has been able to essentially understand that, um, but put Rwanda's future still at the top of its priority.
1: Last time I checked, doesn't Rwanda fund some of the insurgents that operate in the Eastern Congo? Yeah, yeah, that's and that's that's a yeah. foreign. I was just talking from a domestic. Well, that's stuff. a foreign policy. Issue from
4: foreign from, forum, for from foreign policy, Rwanda's is doing a lot of stuff.
2: Many of questionable, them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: not even questionable, but
2: imprudent for them. You had to just, ruin the mood, Brian. He
4: mentioned it. I felt like I had to mention that. No, 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 no Brian, too. Brian, you're correct. Every regime has. Good parts and bad Damn parts. I am and, and I'm, I'm going to bring this into my third, into my third case study of, of an Africa success story, and you guys all disagree with me. Qaddafi's Libya. No, I, wouldn't no, disagree. I don't, I don't, really don't disagree. I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree. I'm just hey, hear me out. Before, and you guys, you guys,
2: you guys have good opinions. You guys Wayne right you're power. a bad person. <laughs> oh, no, no,
4: no. That, that's never been debated. I'm just going to drop some numbers.
2: Drop some numbers,
4: when Qaddafi took power in Libya. Literacy rate rose from 10% to, to 88%, mm-hmm. roughly. Mo- infant mortality rate fell from 125 to 15 deaths per thousand live births. And in 2010, you know, the, the year before he went down in flames, Libya's estimated GDP per capita was about $12,000, which is among the highest in Africa. And I'll, I'll do one more thing. There was, a human, uh, there was a human development index that the UN runs. In 2010, Libya's human development score was higher than Russia's, China's, Ukraine's, Romania's, and Serbia's. So they, something, whatever Gaddafi was doing there, he had improved the country in certain areas, which a lot of Libyans today in the country would say, "Man, we kind of want that back." Yeah, you got his son. <laughs> and <or, or>, <laughs> and, and they're allowing They're allowed to run for president. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the table. I'm seeing Brian, Aubrey, and Jimmy are saying, "No, this is a bad model." And there's a lot of reasons why. I want you guys to each elocute why first, Libby is a bad model. First off, I didn't. I am not
1: saying it's a bad. Oh, model. I'm sorry. My
4: bad. I apologize. Okay.
1: But I'll let the other three say something before I do. Oh, I guess. I guess.
4: <laughs> you want to go first, Aubrey, and then Jimmy can bring it through.
0: Before Aubrey talks, I just want to say this one thing. Last time The views Aubrey of this
2: broadcast <laughs> are not Aubrey's everything like one
0: <laughs> 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 Aubrey looked like he was recently
4: fired. Oh my god. Yeah, he like
0: he f- came in this is disheveled.
4: Yeah, okay, yeah. No, right, we need to right, see him loosen
0: Like he was hurt.
4: <laughs> no,
1: no, no. We need to see him we'll loosen the tie. And no, and no, now no, we
4: this know. is great. Avoid Lutman <laughs> had a great day in the office. I want to hear what you think. Now he got a new job and then. Why is Gaddafi's model is a it's bad model for the African <laughs> country's fall? Uh
5: it's because it's still in some sort of way uh impressed with by coercion. Because Gaddafi was still just an awful tyrant yeah and it's just something that morally i'm perpetually against no matter the cost uh and that's mainly my only reason
4: he was certainly corrupt too I, i didn't mention that but he's obviously corrupt kagame was corrupt too he's he's had some corruption scandals as well corruption's almost endemic in africa unfortunately
2: uh jimmy do you have a specific reason a big major reason i do um so Where did all those economic packages and deals come from? Hmm. No, I mean, I'm serious. Like, where did they come from? It wasn't in... This was not domestic policy. This was foreign policy. Gaddafi's received a bunch of... And he received them in somewhat goodwill from the West. And it was an agreement to rid himself of WMD projects. Mm -hmm. Great. Cool. Libya's done well um, with those like assured economic packages from the west what was the result of what happened of that though he deprived himself of um as it were wmds now he has become a now we go to the geopolitical pivot pivot the <laughs> standpoint <laughs> of this podcast um but the reason why it's bad is because a domestically Uh, There's still an ongoing civil strife. It's maybe not a civil war, but as of the last week or so, it's expected to go back to a civil war status in Libya. Yeah, it's going back. Um, But also, if you're Kim Jong-un or if you're Iran, you have to look at the the giant geopolitical situation and say, okay, Gaddafi is a guy that gave up um, WMDs. In order to pursue a better domestic policy, which he thought would assure himself of more political security in his country. Mm-hmm. And the opposite has happened. He he, got a carpenter's knife. Uh, he uh, wasn't. Some, somewhere inserted somewhere in place. He I wasn't think. able to hold the world and hold his people at hostage anymore. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that from a point of realism, um, he got. I'm gonna go back to my New York roots. He got mopped. Like He got he, got he got mopped and Maliwapped. <laughs> he uh, got Maliwapped. He wopped, okay. he died <laughs> and, it, and if you're Kim Jong-un, or if you're an American policymaker, you have to like look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, well when we deny um, successfully through economic means a dictator of WMDs, there's repercussions to that too. Sure. So first off,
3: I agree with Everything you just said, Jared. yeah, it was very well said. Every last word. Yeah. I have two points to make about Gaddafi, they're both rather interesting. One's a fact, one is a mindset, if you will. So, my first, my fact about him everyone in this room, we know someone who was next door neighbors with Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> Muammar Gaddafi owned a five million dollar mansion in Seaside Cliffs, New Jersey. Oh, God, no. In which... You
0: know what? I'm glad he's dead
3: now. He originally originally wanted to buy a... he He wanted to buy an apartment or house in Manhattan, but found out that there weren't backyards there for him to sleep in his bulletproof tent. And so he bought a house on two acres in Seaside Cliffs, New Jersey. And he slept in his tent every night with his you know, five to ten red beret-wearing Special yeah, Forces women. You guard, that
2: Guard, yes. Yes, exactly. Shout out to DJ Family, dude. And Bird.
3: so that's yeah. that <laughs> really the level of
1: corruption uh, that he had. I'm but. not going to lie, though. He made the right decision to get a bulletproof tent. Why? Because it's New Jersey.
3: R- fair yes. enough. Yes. But yes. the second point that I found fascinating is when I was traveling through the Middle East and North Africa this summer, Oh, I, Campbell
2: Bay. And he
3: was okay with yeah, it? However. <laughs> <laughs> trains, planes, automobiles, vehicles.
2: Jack go. Jack, the Bedouin poet.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and the so Bedouin. I asked people about this, because I'd always studied this in undergraduate, about Muslims and Arabs sticking with other Muslims and Arabs no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so I asked one of my friends over there, he lives in Amman, and I go, What you know, what do you think of Osama bin Laden? Um, what do you think of Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein? And he goes, obviously, I never supported them, like what they what they were trying to do and their cause. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all from the same blood.
4: Who and who was this gentleman? I'm sorry, I, I missed it. A friend of mine from Amman,
3: from Amman, Jordan. Okay. And so the, the interesting I love well, it's beautiful, beautiful. beautiful, but the the interesting thing about it is is that. Muslims and Arabs will always support other Muslims and Arabs, even if they're wrong. Well, if they're taken they, from outsiders, if it's, if it's an internal... Exactly, if it's an, which is why Gaddafi, in a sense, was kind of... It was okay, the way he got killed, because he got killed by, by fellow Libyans. That's a good point. But with, like, Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein, people in the Middle East still, to this day, have gripes uh, with America over the way in which we killed those people because a lot of them thought that they should have been able to kill them it's 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 wow. a very interesting perspective. it's it's an internal
2: a, security mechanism no. essentially
1: the thing that makes it, from what you just said about what you talked about with your friends it makes me think of something else it makes me actually think about uh, a different continent uh, in the land, basically Latin America. Where if you talk to anyone in Latin America about what they think of Fidel Castro in the U.S., we would say, oh, he was he's an evil person." But in Latin America, they don't see him that way. They actually see him in a more positive light for what he did for his own people in terms of healthcare and education, as well as. Some of the other things he's done throughout Latin America, they see it more in a positive light, which is very different than what Americans are used to. So I can understand what you're talking about. Same can be said with like Pablo
3: Escobar building schools. Exactly. If you go to
1: Ecuador, there are more people who actually prefer Pablo Escobar. Not for his drug businesses and all that, but specifically because he built schools. He built soccer fields, hospitals in the poorest communities in all of Colombia. Right, and that gained a lot of support for him in those regions.
5: And Aubrey, it looks like wants to say <laughs> yeah. something, so I'll give it the mic to him. Oh, no! I, I just, I just thought that that's it would be just a perfect segue going into our Hezbollah deep dive. Hey, you, you take I would it away. love to go into well, and do that.
3: please. <laughs> that
4: that's the thing for you, okay. Samaj and, and Jack Jack over there. So go ahead. I'm gonna go into
3: the corner. My spirit, oh, yes. is, yeah, kind of spirit, yeah. All right. You are the expert here. Uh, okay, so uh, just a general question, real quick, like. No. Show of hands. How many would in this room would say that Lebanon is a failed state or on the verge of becoming a failed state? Failed it's very state. weak. Um, I don't know too much about it though. I Fail. Failed? Failed. Okay. Well, so I have some interesting facts about Hezbollah is that so? the 2018 election actually gave them the political majority. Mm -hmm. So they now have seats that are a little over a third of all parliament, whereas the other two-thirds are basically divided up among smaller um, parties of uh, Sunni, Muslims, and Christians. And for those of us who don't know the inner working religious uh, atmosphere of Lebanon, it's pretty much evenly divided in thirds between Sunni and Shia Muslims and Christians. Uh, so basically, by controlling parliament, Hezbollah now had it created political gridlock. Hezbollah can now veto constitutional amendments and presidential election results. So if the people of Lebanon were to vote in a president to, you know, both like, nah. as well, <laughs> no, we don't like him. Yeah. And they're going to end up appointing their own man. Um, the so just some, some statistics on the current situation within Lebanon, their currency is devalued devalued by 90 percent, passing Venezuela and Zimbabwe for the world's worst as of 2020. Uh, consumer and food products have risen by 1025 and 20.82% respectively per month. 75% of the population lives in some form of poverty now. Mm. The government is essentially too poor to import oil and other fossil fuels, so electricity only is turned on for roughly three to four hours a day, typically between noon and 4 p.m. Um, there's a nationwide teaching strike which is threatening the education system because teachers argue that they lose over 90% of their annual wages due to inflation. So they, they make about $100 a year. Uh, 80% of the population attends private schools, which now are requiring them to pay tuition in US dollars, which is illegal in Lebanon. And most of the families can't even afford it at this point. Uh, the school system is essentially in paralysis Kids have not been to school for two to three years with the teaching strikes plus COVID. Forty uh, percent of surgeons and doctors have left the country to make better money elsewhere. Thirty percent of nurses are included in that. Lebanon is lacking over the counter and prescription medications. Pharmacies owe exporters 600 million dollars who will not ship medicine until the debts are paid, or they've already canceled expected shipments because they know the debts can't be paid. So basically normal chronic illnesses, such as like asthma, diabetes, higher low blood pressure are becoming deadly in Lebanon. Like people are dying every day from these normal, you know, normal ailments that are very treatable in most other countries. Uh, Lastly, the the food crisis, Lebanon imports 85% of all of its foods can't pay for the shipments, for one. Two, the Port of Beirut explosion in 2020 significantly hamstrung their shipping operation. Uh, It knocked out the vast majority of the Port of Beirut, which is the main port in Lebanon. And food is now flowing through the Port of Beirut at an 80 to 85% reduction from what it used to be before the explosion.
4: And I assume, too, in Lebanon, they imported a lot of their wheat and
3: stuff from Ukraine. Yes, they did. Right. right. And so I'm, I'm sure, sure this has... war is even hurting more. Yeah. Uh, so essentially this entire situation of Lebanon being a failed state works to Hezbollah's advantage. Mm-hmm. Because as Hezbollah is able to use it to consolidate power politically, financially, socially, militarily. Right. And so they're they're the only they're the only party in political power essentially who can change the situation. But why would they change it? You know they're essentially they're able they receive over 700 million dollars annually from iran Mm -hmm. as part of the state-funded terror project by the ircg and the kudz forces Mm -hmm. and so they're not connected to the economy in any way shape or form um is by far the best fed trained and equipped military in the country so even if the people wanted to do anything forget about it it would be an absolute Mm -hmm. slaughter And essentially, Hezbollah has now started these social services Mm -hmm. in which they have pharmacies and stores that offer Iranian and Syrian groceries and medicine at a way cheaper price than anywhere else in the country. And the only way to access those stores is to either be a member of the Hezbollah political party or to support them Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Additionally, and this is the really interesting part, this is the only organization I know that does this in the world to my knowledge, as Bola administers monthly debit cards with $200 USD loaded to any supporter or party member to cover living expenses so that they are way above the rest of the population. And so, of course, if you're someone who's on the verge of, you know, your family's mm-hmm. going to starve to death, mm-hmm. why would you not support as they're, they're your way out. That's you know? Doesn't seem like a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's my point. They create these humanitarian catastrophes and it just to benefit themselves and to further consolidate their power and standing. Hey, depending how far they go, Israel might start another invasion.
0: <laughs> well, I wouldn't even do that because <laughs> Hezbollah has more weapons than the damn Lebanese armed forces. Oh, by um, a lot. By a lot. They have one of the largest arsenals of missiles alone. Um, additionally, uh, to their operations in South America, um, but their... Their social services remind me of the the Muslim Brotherhood when they first started, uh, where even now, it's difficult to label the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization because they provided, and they still provide to some degree, um, social services. If you declare a terrorist organization that provides uh, social services, to the population, then technically you're declaring those social services not only illegal, but then they come under sanctions, um, they disrupt social, um, socioeconomic uh, developments, um, and unfortunately that way that will only push people to much more radical endeavors um, to try to uh, alleviate their situations. Um, Hezbollah played the long game. And granted, after the Lebanese Civil War, we talked about this last week, Hezbollah was the only faction that did not have to demilitarize um, after the Lebanese Civil War was over in 93. They were the only faction that were allowed to keep their weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, that's when they started to really redevelop themselves into part of the, the Lebanese state apparatus. Um, like we said last week, Hezbollah, Hezbollah is, is interesting because some days they'll confess their allegiance to Iran's Ayatollah. Other days they won't. Sometimes when they have their rallies, um, depending on what the, what the day is or the, or the, the event, they'll, you know, profess like, oh, we have full allegiance to the Ayatollah. But then technically Hezbollah has their own mini Ayatollah. Um, that they essentially when it comes to domestic politics he's he has the significant authority but when it comes to regional geopolitical um policies then the irani and ayatollah irgc could force which is the irani revolutionary guards Corps, um that's when they follow their lead um it's just it's interesting because you see hamas doing the same thing with social services um and when you target, you know Hamas as a terrorist organization, the best way to really take that cancer out, cancer out, you have to develop Palestine. You have to. That's the only way to destroy
4: Hamas. So, you, so just to clarify what you guys are saying, so what Hezbollah and Hamas are doing, in terms of providing social services to their constituents, it's an effective short term uh, counter to a long term problem. I Lebanon's and the West Bank's continued prosperity. Or yeah, yeah.
3: so time to that point, speaking of Hamas because it's very similar, but Hamas is a little more tricky about it. Um, and I, I'm sorry if I piss off any you know Arab <laughs> listeners here. Um, I'm not a hio, but uh, exactly. You know basically what Hamas does is they hide weapons, mm-hmm. um, rockets, mortars, you name it. In mosques, in hospitals, and then when, and, and people will be in there. And then when Israel hits it with, you know, a smart weapon of some sort, a guided rocket, what have you, they get pissed and they blame Israel. But Israel's very good at sending in teams after the fact to make sure that they hit a good target. And I think it's like 93% of the time. It, they end up finding leftover munitions of some sort. It, it ends up being a weapons depot. Mm-hmm. But what it allows Hamas to do is say, oh, you killed innocent civilians, mm-hmm. when in reality you had missiles and weapons and ammo inside of this mosque or hospital mm-hmm. that got hit. And then what they also do that's sneaky is there is a huge smuggling tunnel system underneath of Palestine and Israel. And... Hamas is very good at smuggling in. There's a people call Palestine the world's largest open-air prison. That's its name. Mm-hmm. You have a naval blockade, air blockade, land blockade. Nothing's getting into it. And so Hamas will smuggle in food, water, any other like humanitarian aid, and administer it amongst the public and say, "Oh, listen, you know, look, we're giving you this aid." because we care about the population, Mm -hmm. and that's why the population still supports them, which is the crazy part, is because they think that they're their saviors, not the ones that are causing the situation in which they live in. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to Asbola. The Houthis do the same thing in Yemen, Mm -hmm. funneling U.N. aid from ports to Mm -hmm. areas they control. Iraqi insurgency did that as well. Though. Exactly. It's it's all, it's all rampant throughout the Middle East and North Africa. And I'm
0: glad you answered JJ, because I know last week I we brought up the question and we can kind of end it on here because we've been talking for over two hours now.
4: What um, is the time actually? I'm just curious. Two
0: hours and 13 minutes. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at. I'm, and we to talk about this last question. Last week I had brought up the notion of what if a time comes that these client proxies of Iran come to the notion that they no longer need Iran. What would... Because we kind of see this in some, in some ways. Houthis are able to do cyber attacks. They're able to produce their own ballistic missiles. Their own They're able to produce their own drones. Same thing with Ebola. Um, very thing with very complex organizations. Exactly. Um, they're deeply now ingraining themselves in their own particular nations. Houthis uh, and, um, and Sana'a um, you know, Hezbollah and Beirut um, and then Hamas, um, even the notions of the, the, the Iranian components of the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraqi's government now, um, or even Syrian Hezbollah now with Bashar al-Assad. Um, and the notion that these proxy organizations no longer become non-state or even semi-state, but full-state forces... Uh, which now have to take care of constituents outside of their main base of support. What type of stress do you think that would put on at least the IRGC Kuds Force where essentially they've created their own monsters in the region?
3: It's, honestly, it's a very interesting uh, question. I've, I've thought about it a little before because you're already starting to see it with Hezbollah in Beirut. Like I said, they've consolidated political power. Uh, If it weren't for the fact that they rely, if it weren't for the fact that the economy of Lebanon was, I mean, just worse, you know, (laughs) just one of the worst on earth. Worst of Botswana is is the the worst worst on earth. Hezbollah could declare themselves as their own government, but they rely on Iran, the IRCG, and the Quds Force for funds Mm -hmm. in which they can still operate. Mm -hmm. And I think you see the same thing with the Houthis. If they were able to establish their own, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on the day, they're either in northern Yemen or southern Yemen. Mm -hmm. But if they were able to establish their own individual state, I think you'd see the same thing. It would just, it largely depends on the financial aspect. I think they have the capabilities militarily to carve out their own roles, and in some instances, even politically. But to answer your question about the kind of stress that it would put on Iran, the IRGC, and the Quds Force, I think it would be immense. I mean for so long this has been Iran's attempt to establish Islamic states in other regions other other countries and so if these countries you know if these groups ultimately took power in these countries and said you know no we don't we don't need you anymore Iran we're going to do things on our own Iran has put all this money towards this group and by the way I mean Hezbollah has gold mining operations in Mexico now, in Venezuela. I mean, they're the most global organization by far in terms of finances and operations. And if you saw someone like them break away from Iran, I'm sure Iran would be pissed. I mean, they have spent probably at least a trillion dollars to to finance this entire operation across numerous organizations. And it would be all for naught. If they gained enough power, they felt comfortable breaking away from them completely. I'm gonna let
4: Brian get the last
3: word. I think my final question before uh, we all wrap we wrap it all up is
1: with if, if Hezbollah just decided to break away from Iran, do you think Iran
3: could really do anything about it? I would say it depends how Hezbollah <coughs> plays their cards. Yeah. We'll throw a water balloon at him and be like, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 victory's but... like. <laughs> I honestly would say,
0: I think, in my opinion, the Houthis may be the first. Yes. And here's why. That relationship is only fairly new.
4: It's one of 2016.
0: Um, right. 2016. And the Houthis, Yemen in general, has been to war with Saudi Arabia at least four different times. Right. Um, the Houthis, their, rel- their religious practices, although, yeah, they're Shia, their practices are more Sunni associated um, before the 2015-2016 relationship who he's there wasn't anything really about Iran they was like okay whatever Now Yemen has their own internal problems North Yemen Southern Yemen the STC this
3: yeah. is just a mess that's a topic for another top right yeah. but
0: Iran came in yeah. one to you know circumvent surround Saudi Arabia but also keep eyes on the Bab el-Mandam Strait which is very 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 strategic um, at the uh, the location of the Red Sea, but we can discuss that at a different podcast. Um, uh, well, oh yeah, Aubrey. <laughs> uh,
5: so I'm not just always popping jokes, but uh, I I also agree. I don't think every mullah uh, is somehow loyal to the Ayatollah. I really think that there are mm-hmm. at least at least some semblance or minority, or maybe some median out there that is. Uh, independent from Tehran yeah. and its influence and mm-hmm. does their own practices their own way. Mm-hmm. I know that there was some Iraqi mullah, I was, I was reading his, some very influential Iraqi mullah that I was reading about, I can't remember his name, but uh, he's very famous, he, uh, he's written a couple of books and a lot of his writings seem very less inflammatory than what I hear Ever coming from Tehran mm-hmm. in terms of religious rhetoric, and that just leads me to that conclusion that they're just not every mullah is going to be
0: yeah tightrope. It's not homogenous mm-hmm. at all. Uh, Menar knows that. Um, but with that being said, we've gone well over. <laughs> um, definitely one of I would say one of our best.
4: Yeah, time flew but in a good way. Like, a I didn't know way. it was two hours and yeah. 20 minutes in. And we're all still so
3: handsome at the end of it. That's uh, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish this thing had a live stream so you guys could see. We're it. thinking about starting that up soon enough. So.
0: That was a joke, but hey, if you want to do No, know. no, we're
2: <laughs> dancing. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah, Jack Jack, and myself are just guests here. So. <laughs> I'll I'll,
3: hey, I'm wearing a hey, suit now. i wear one every day. Hey, you Maybe guys are free stuff. to come back whenever
0: you want. Hey. Yeah,
1: no, for sure.
2: I'll wear a cloud mask. Oh, my God.
0: Aubrey would do that, too. I, I know he would. Um, but with that said, you know, we've talked about a lot today. It's a lot to digest. I uh, want that. Uh, we're going to end it here. Uh, much bless. Many blessings. Much love.